Okay, good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition. I mean, tonight, a very, very special edition of The Other Side of Midnight, the program where a lot of stuff happens behind the scenes. And, you know, maybe we should make a reality television show out of this someday. No one would believe it. Okay. Um, tonight, we're going to hopefully make a little history because, as I said in the promo that uh, uh, appeared, uh, you know, this morning, um, for decades, I've been trying to get people to see what is essentially invisible. And I've tried all different means ever since I figured out that there were ancient glass ruins on the moon. I mean, come on. They have to be made of glass, Right. And what does glass do? It transmits light. So it's very difficult to see glass structures, even though glass is uh, more than half the uh, uh, elements, uh, the molecular compounds of the Earth's surface, and even more so of the moon. Uh, that's why stuff is made of glass, because it's cheap, it's available, and in a vacuum it uh, creates incredibly strong structures as uh, the Los Alamos National Laboratory demonstrated with papers many decades ago. Uh, but it is our misfortune that what we find on the moon, and we're going to be showing you in never-before-seen detail tonight, is made of glass, which has made it very difficult because not only is the glass transparent, it appears to be self-annealing, uh, what do I mean by that? It means that if you fire a bullet through it or you make a scratch in it with a diamond, it will heal itself. And the scratches are what cause light scattering, which is why when you look through a dirty windshield, when you're driving west uh, in the late afternoon toward the setting sun, you can't see the landscape because the glass is pitted with little imperfections, dust particles, you know, all kinds of crud. And it's those little scattering centers that give you that glare when means you can't see through the glare to the landscape beyond. Well, on the moon, it turns out the glass is quite a bit more sophisticated. And many years ago, when I kind of got onto this, I made a call to Rensselaer Polytech and asked them about their analysis of the lunar samples. They were one of the experimental teams that received um, part of the Apollo 11 uh, return samples. And when I mentioned things like self-annealing, um, they hung up on me and I could never get them back. And obviously they don't answer email from someone they know is a troublemaker. So uh, I never got an answer to my simple question. Was the lunar glass brought back by the astronauts and admitted in the open literature papers that, you know, an enormous percentage of the uh, lunar material that we brought back from the moon in all the missions was glass. Uh, for those folks who think we never went to the moon, why would they think if we went to the moon and faked the papers that we would make up such a bizarre combination uh, that the lunar samples contained an inordinate high percentage of glass? It's not like glasses in our 
you know, lexicon. It's not like we look around and we see glass on the landscape everywhere, not even in, uh, in you know, places where you'd expect to find glass, like around volcanoes. So why, if we never went to the moon, did the uh, papers that got written record this extraordinary high percentage of glass in the lunar materials brought back to Earth? Well, the simple answer is the glass is from the domes. It's been falling on the surface of the moon for millions of years, uh, if I was to give you an accurate number, which is not possible tonight. It would kind of freak some people out, so we will refrain from uh, unnecessarily freaking people out. But there's a lot of glass on the moon, and no one has really accounted for it. I mean, they're, they glibly talk about meteorite formations, you know, you hit uh, silicon dioxide with enough heat at an impact, a micrometeorite impact, and you get glass. Anyway, that's one explanation. There are much more interesting ones that tonight you are going to see. We have finally, after decades on this trail, discovered a foolproof way to prove, let me underscore that, to prove that there are incredibly highly structured architectural remains of a multi-layered glass dome that at one time apparently covered the entire moon. Now, people freak out when I say that because it's like, oh, my God, the scale of that, the engineering, the energy. And anyway, so we'll defer all that to a little later in the program. I want to start tonight for those of you who are new to the other side of midnight, what you need to do is to go to our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, click on tonight's banner, which says very provocatively uh, for the 29th. I think Kintia has the wrong date there. It says the 28th. It should say the 29th because it is the 29th tonight. Eclipse Imaging Breakthrough confirms an artificial moon. Now, do I mean the moon through and through is artificial? No. But it's very hard to put nuance into a... uh, blurb so that'll get people interested in finding out what the heck we really mean and um, when you see that you will you'll see how it all kind of comes together so what you want to do is click on that banner that will take you to tonight's guest page and right under the guest page there are uh, fast links to items right under where it says to listen to the show under the banner click on my name that takes you to my section of radio with pictures this is January, January 2023. A couple, three days ago, NASA held a day of remembrance because by a bizarre quirk of fate or maybe some bizarre resonance in the physics, all of the American astronauts who had been lost both on the ground and in space, except for a couple of the airplane crashes, which... Uh, that we're not counting, but those involved in preparations for upcoming missions like Apollo 1 with uh, Grissom, uh, Chafee, and Ed White, and the other missions, the Columbia and the Challenger, all occurred in January of their respective years. Now, the Columbia was actually technically in February February 1, but it's so close in terms of the window that it's basically, you know, if we're looking for commonality. And 
when when Georgia comes on, Georgia, who's our resident metaphysician, and she's talked about this sacred hyperdimensional calendar where we go through the year and things are kind of set up and then toward the end of the year they come to fruition. I'm just wondering if there is something to the emplacement of all of the major astronaut deaths in the U.S. space program have taken place in or at the very end of the January window. Now, if any of you have been looking at the news lately, it's horrific. Um, starting, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago with the um, uh, Chinese lunar calendar celebrations and the massacre there in Los Angeles, and then going up to Half Moon Bay uh, and another massacre um, on the same, you know, within within 48 hours. Uh, Robin and I had wonderful times in Half Moon Bay, but again, there's this weird resonance lunar calendar half moon bay i mean what's going on there and is this of human design is someone sending meta level messages of death or is this at some higher level i'm i'm of the opinion that we're looking at higher level stuff um and when we uh, bring georgia on in a couple hours we will uh, i will you know definitely um remind myself and you'll remind me I'm sure to ask her what she thinks of this because these weird resonance patterns and then what yesterday the day before there were another seven people killed um, in Los Angeles so we've had you know constant non-stop mass public death and that's not counting the other 30 plus killings between the beginning of January and tonight and so I thought it might be important to take a pause because these are all horrible, tragic, pointless, you know, departures of humans from this 3D realm. But if you look at item number one, this is a connection to the NASA.gov specials uh, Day of Remembrance page. All those people, all those astronauts, all those American heroes who died, they died for a reason. They died doing something that they loved. They died in service to the larger sense of the nation and humanity. And they died for a future, which you're going to hear about, you know, in the next three hours tonight, that is going to take the human race to incomparable heights once the next group of astronauts be they the Artemis astronauts who are going to the moon in a couple of years or the wild card on the space scene, the nine artists who Elon Musk is um, taking in the Starship on a three-day journey, orbiting the moon for three days before his uh, hand-picked group of uh, artists, musical artists, photographers, um, um, communications artists, um, musicians, broad-scale artists, you know, right-brained folks, people who can see outside the box. Those people are going to go to the moon. And based on what we're going to talk about tonight, and we now are making inroads in delivering this information directly to each and every one 
of these civilians who will not have signed their lives away as the military is required to do with NDAs and non-disclosures and, you know, orders and um, following, you know, the, the command structure. These will be nine civilian artists who from a distance of only about 120 miles above the moon, which is about twice the altitude of the original Apollo astronauts. And I think that's a very good uh, altitude because if you go much lower, you wind up interacting with the uh, fragments of the dome that are still there, which have the consistency, by the way, on the near side, on the front side of cigarette smoke. And the only reason that we now tonight can debut a technology that can make all of this incredibly ancient, super advanced architecture visible is there is so much of it, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles of what they call optical path length, where the light has to go through and through and through and through, and it's scattered and reflected, and it's the long distance, that optical path length that kicks back enough light to be visible and photographable, provided you know the secret sauce. And it's taken me decades to figure out, with a little help from our uh, South Korean friends, the secret sauce. And then it's one of those things where before you figure it out, it's impossible. And after you figure it out, it's like, oh, my God. It was obvious. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's item number one. Item number two. Now, this is in relation to some of our discussion tonight uh, later on with Michael Hill, because the moon is part of a Earth-moon system, which is not a random collection of planetary objects. It turns out the moon is exactly 0.272 times the diameter of the earth and what is 0.272 oh gosh it's the base of natural logarithms now you tell me that a random accretion process back in the generic mainstream formation of the solar system um, somehow the earth acquired a moon in its particular inclination and distance and and uh, non-circularity of its orbit that is exactly 0.272, the nat base of natural logarithms, um, a fraction of the Earth which it orbits. Okay, no, there's something more interesting going on. And it in fact includes a very important frequency that we're gonna talk about uh, toward the end of the show quite a bit, 432 and all of the fractals thereof. Keep that number in mind, 432. It will come back into the conversation in a while. So item number two um, is relating to this physics because these are all numbers that are basically at the heart of the hyperdimensional physics model. And recent studies have suggested that, well, many, many years ago it was discovered through mainstream science, earthquake data, you know, uh, long distance networks of seismic uh, uh, stations and all that, that the core of the Earth, which is a little over 700 miles in diameter and an 8,000 mile diameter planet, the core of the Earth is not rotating 
with the rest of Earth. It's rotating slightly faster. Well, it now appears to have paused. So when they say in that headline, Earth's inner core may have paused its rotation and reversed, they don't mean that it's spinning backward in space. They mean it's spinning backward slightly relative to the surface layers, the mantle and the crust, which are rotating at the familiar rate of 24 hours uh, once around relative to the sun. And all of that is so bizarre. I mean, um, I could pull up the actual quote. This is a story in, of all places, The Hill. Now, does anybody remember what The Hill newspaper is? It's kind of like the official newspaper of the Congress on Capitol Hill. What is a political you know, paper devoted to votes and politics and Republicans and Democrats and independents and, you know, surveys and polls and, in other words, the politics of the nation. What is it doing suddenly out of the blue featuring a story relating to Earth's inner core changing its rotation relative to the rest of the planet? Um is it possible that somebody somewhere knows something and we're being carefully prepped to figure it out in the mainstream? It's going to come kind of like the new wisdom from the NASA folks looking at UAPs and the Pentagon folks looking at UAPs and the various congressmen and senators who are waiting with bated breath for the leakers to come forward with stories from inside the government, inside the military, inside the contractor, you know, ensemble, inside NASA that relates to a technology for flying around in the atmosphere of the Earth that in fact is not normal day-to-day mainstream physics, but in fact only works if there is a higher level physics of which the dramatic change in the rotation of the inner core of the earth is something that can be safely teased as part of things to come. Item number three. This appeared in several different venues. uh, There's a couple of papers in Nature, which is the kind of official Bible of science uh, published out of uh, uh, Britain. And then there are various news agencies around the world that picked up on this. Ron and I are going to talk about this later uh, in the show because just as we're getting Artemis missions to the moon and just as Musk is preparing to fly his nine tourists, his nine artists, and just as there is a whole flotilla of unmanned spacecraft heading back to the moon to look at all kinds of things, including some commercial unmanned robotic landings in the next few months or attempted landings, uh, we suddenly have a, a feature story circulating around the planet that the powers that be are trying to figure out what kind of time standard to establish on the moon. And as Ron and I have discussed off air, um, there's something missing in the story. And so you want to read the story and then, I mean, you don't have to do it now, but you'll listen to us and then you'll go read the story and you'll see that we may be able to provide a missing puzzle piece for what is otherwise really kind of 
unusual because why should there be any real disagreement about what kind of time to try to keep on the moon given today's extraordinarily accurate uh, atomic timekeeping technology and the ability of uh, radio uh, waves to transmit time code information anywhere in the solar system uh, why wouldn't they simply adopt uh, you know Greenwich Mean Time or universal uh, time and transport it to the moon by means of radio signals but no there's something else going on and so when we get to that part of tonight's uh, conversation we will delve into some of the details item number four we are now entertaining once again in the skies of late late january uh, culminating in the next week or so as this object flies closest within i think something like 20 8 million miles of Earth, the comet, uh, the comet of uh, 2023, the first bright one, the first one that actually has risen now to naked eye visibility. It's about fifth magnitude um, in the constellation of Camelor Pardalis, which lies kind of between Ursa Minor and Ursa Major in that graphic. And as you know, the uh, uh, pole star, um, point is is basically Polaris so the two end stars in Ursa Major the Big Dipper point toward Polaris well if you go out before dawn this morning and you look to the north if you're in the northern hemisphere and if you're in the country where the sky is dark you'll never see this in a city unfortunately um, what you want to do is draw that line between Ursa Major the two stars in the belt in the uh, uh, dipper of the uh, Big Dipper to Polaris, make a right-hand turn about halfway between the two, and there, just to the right, about the same distance, you'll find this faint comet with a tail pointing away from the sun. So if sunrise is around six-ish uh, in the morning, you want to go out at least an hour before, because that's still in uh, astronomical twilight, and you'll know that the tail should point up away from the east, and uh, you'll need probably binoculars to see it, uh, to lock onto it, and then with your naked eye, you can actually boast to yourself and your friends that you've seen another interesting object. Now, why why is this important now? Well, a number of us on the Enterprise Mission uh, team have come to the conclusion that most of these objects, these incredible celestial wayfarers, these wanderers, uh, are not natural. They're left over from this ancient, incredibly advanced technological time, this era, millions of years ago, maybe co-equal in time, maybe uh, a bit younger, but the same time frame in which whoever domed in the moon built the dome around our own satellite right in our backyard. And why do they have tails and why do they outgas? Because they were habitats and spacecraft and they were prey to this extraordinary interplanetary war which interrupted everything and from which we have apparently still not recovered. All of that, of course, is speculation until, based on the data we're going to present tonight, of the reality of a formerly inhabited moon with tons of architecture. Somewhere in all that architecture, either 
above ground in newer emplacements or below ground in very ancient vaults and archives. There are libraries which contain not only written documentation of all the stuff that we speculate about, if the model is correct, but probably also a stunning set of imagery that moves. In other words, video. And it is going to fall to the astronauts of the Artemis program who are going to be the forerunners of NASA's effort with international cooperation to set up the first modern permanent lunar base near the South Pole of the moon to find one of those libraries, bring it home, and understand how to decode the extraordinary information contained therein. That is our mission. Okay, we're literally down to the last couple of minutes before the bottom of the hour. Uh, let me leave you with one final um, news note. When I saw this a few days ago, it's like a light bulb went off and I thought, well, of course. This is a story about Chelsea Handler, who's a very famous, you know, information person, YouTube person, actress, singer, dancer, whatever. She's one of those public actresses who is all over everywhere and you don't really kind of wonder why she is famous she's just kind of famous for being famous in this story in this profile she admits that she did not know the difference between the sun and the moon until she was in her 40s and the author of the piece the the writer said and she was so serious now, I'm not pointing this out to embarrass Chelsea Handler, but to basically point fingers at something really, really crucial, which is the American educational system. How can one in America, in the United States of America, how can one possibly reach the uh, age of 40 and not know something as simple and basic as the difference between the sun and the moon. And as I looked at this story, as I read the details, um, and she is properly chagrined, it occurred to me that an awful lot of other people who don't have the courage to be honest and admit exactly what the problem has been, when we purvey this data, when we show them images and radar and all kinds of optical, you know, spectral measurements and a variety of infrared imagery and all the panoply of overwhelming evidence for the existence of this set of domes, these shell structures around the moon. The reason there has been no real reaction is because most people, if we can use Chelsea Handler as our example, they have no idea what should exist on or above or below the surface of the moon. They see it with the naked eye, if they see the sky at all, and it's like there for a while and then it's not there. And all of the stories about going there and the astronauts and all that, they're kind of like background noise because they don't really affect their life here on Earth, which for all people has been getting worse and worse and worse. And it's really hard every day just to make a living, let alone entertain 
random romantic thoughts about what could have been in an ancient time long, long ago and a quarter million miles away around the surface of something that is so part of the background that it's taken for granted and the details have completely passed, again, again given Handler's confession, completely passed most people by. So I believe that we're going to have to have a kind of a dedicated campaign for those people that do not understand, never imagined that there would be something impinge on their world and would actually change the very conversation about the relevance of the moon orbiting the earth. When we come back, I will introduce our panel. We will have the most interesting conversation about what can change future history for all humankind. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. This is the dark side of the moon. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Choose your own road. How you live, how you fly. Smile, you'll be, and tears will cry. 
And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night, January 29th. Only a couple days more left in the first month of the new year, 2023. And it's going to go like snow on the sun side of Mercury, I guarantee you, particularly if there are surprises down the road. And next Sunday night, we're going to do part two of our uh, of things to come in 2023. And we're going to try to predict some of the things that could happen um, that may surprise some of you. And then we'll lead to other surprises in a kind of a concatenation of surprise. Okay, so let me go back to what I was going to set up the panel for. As soon as I do a little more backgrounding here, I'm going to introduce our players for the night. If you go to item number six, I'm going to do this real quickly. I have been looking at the um, potential of lunar artifacts for, you know, at least a decade and a half, if not even longer. Um, I did not start out thinking there was this lunar-wide dome that came slowly um, through some rather remarkable serendipitous events from NASA and a mission called LaCrosse in 2009. Um, but the actual official deep state examination of the potential for structures on the moon that can be seen with even modest cameras from the Earth apparently began back during the formation of Project Corona by the CIA. And I've always felt, when I figured out what they were really up to, when I got that leaked uh, roll of film briefly before they snatched it away, but not before I couldn't make a couple of, you know, frames, uh, uh, you know, record them and look at them in some detail. Um, I've always felt that this hidden occupation of the Central Intelligence Agency looking at the moon when they should have been looking down from orbit, as they told us they were doing, at Soviet bombers and airfields and industrial parks and tank, you know, deployments and all that, that that was because we're kind of living in this two-tiered level of reality, whereas the stuff on Earth is supposed to be real and the stuff out in space is supposed to be, well, not connected, not really, you know, part of ordinary folks' lives at all. And in fact, it may be inverted. It's the stuff out there that they have really been focused on. And all the stuff going on down here is kind of like diversion. So we'll never, outside of the officialdom, get a real picture of what happened out there that has so mandated and so constrained and so totally formed everything we think of as normal down here. And it began with that first photo, number six, which is a KH8 image from Project Corona, corrected by some imaging work I did on it. And it shows a very different moon um, in some areas than you see if you just look up at the moon on a full moon night or you look at it with a telescope or binoculars. There again, on that first CIA set of imagery, it, there's some kind of a haze, some kind of a covering which blots out surface detail and they were not using, I don't think, on this imagery, the amazing technological breakthrough that we're going to talk about later tonight. This appears to have been an early effort 
by the CIA to figure out how do you photograph this extraordinary, unbelievable, lunar-wide domed structure. Which brings us to number seven. Now, this is a modern image taken in central Mongolia during a total eclipse of the sun by a Czech researcher named Druckmuller. And what he does is he takes multiple images and then with a very special written computer program, which not only evens out the bright and, and, and dark areas of the image, so you can get the corona in its full extraordinary um, detail, stretching from the moon's limb out several lunar or solar radii away. But he also uh, developed a program to photograph the faint reflected light of the, of the earth, earth shine, earth light, shining on the dark hemisphere of the moon, which of course is facing the earth. And under normal eclipse images, it appears to be a totally black circle, but it's not. There is light there. And what Dirk Miller has done is to develop very sophisticated computer algorithms that allow him to allow for the differential movement in the sky during the period of image taking between the moon, which of course is moving across the sky at a little over 2000 miles an hour. So if there's a five minute eclipse and you're taking pictures during the eclipse in that five minutes, the moon has moved relative to the sun and the corona 93 miles away behind it. And his algorithm is able to now, in such a sophisticated manner, to allow for these separate motions and to reconstruct and reel back the clock in terms of individual motions that his imaging of the Earth light on the moon is by far the highest resolution and the most precise and the most replicable, and it's on his imagery that we have made what I call the final breakthrough in seeing the domes around the moon. Look very carefully at that image. I mean, really carefully. Now, if you're Chelsea Handler, it looks like the moon, right? Or people who are like Chelsea that haven't really kind of paid attention for many, many decades to what the moon looks like. But if you're anybody who's an amateur astronomer or someone who kind of looks at the moon in a different way with the dawn of the space age as a place that someday they may actually go either as an astronaut or as a tourist, and there are a lot of those folks with us now, that moon that you're seeing there, which looks so, quote, normal, it's absolutely mind-blowing. It should not exist. So go to number eight. Click on number eight. On the left is a normal white light image taken from low Earth orbit by the Iconos um, Earth observing satellite that was put up a decade or so ago. It's in space. It's in a vacuum. And the object on the right is the uh, same image from uh, Druckmuller taken in 2008 in Mongolia. And they're scaled so that you're looking at the same size object. Notice the difference detail. They are not the same. They should be the same. The same moon, the same sun reflected from the earth, 
So why should reflecting sunlight from the Earth onto the dark side of the moon when it's facing us during an eclipse, why should it suddenly have very, very different features? Okay, that's one mystery. Now we go to number nine. This is a photograph taken during a South Korean press conference uh, a few weeks ago um, of the uh, uh, Korean Space Agency presentation on their Denuri unmanned mission to the moon that left many months ago and just arrived uh, in December of last year and went into a low orbit about 60 miles up in a polar orbit now circling the moon every couple hours. This was a picture that when I saw it, it was like, oh, you, you got to be kidding. This is, this, is, this is unbelievable. What the heck are the South Koreans doing? Because again, look carefully at number 10, which is an enlargement of that image. Um, what, the, what the South Koreans did is to take that image, blow it up, put it on a poster as part of their website, and they put artificial artistic stars behind it and I've left the stars so you can kind of see how they took this real photo and they made it appear to be an art piece telling nobody the details of the photo even during that press conference uh, if you look at uh, number seven uh, that presenter didn't talk about what was on this moon image at all he just used it as a kind of a talking piece for the orbit. Uh, there's a very faint red line. If you go back and look at uh, number, number nine, that red line is the trajectory of the Nduri spacecraft on this kind of poor reproduction, which was on the web. If you go to number 11, again, this is a comparison between the Nduri moon on the left and the Akanos moon on the right. Notice what is so stunningly, bizarrely out of place in terms of the Denuri moon image compared to the normal moon that you see with your own eyes, you see in countless photographs, uh, either with you know a smartphone or with a telescope or from an observatory or from NASA. Uh, the moon on the right is the kind of one we're all familiar with, those that know the moon at all, and it turns out to be a very small fraction of our current population. The moon on the left, it should not be, it's, it's impossible. Why is there this bright, bright ring around the Denuri spacecraft moon? And if you look at number 10, again, close up, you can see that the moon image that they are purveying was not even taken from the earth. It was taken in transit between the Earth and the Moon during the early part of the Denuri mission. How do we know this? Because the bright crater in the middle, if you compare the image in number um, uh, 10 to 11, you can see that bright crater is to the left, way to the left, like 20 degrees to the left of center in the Iconos Moon, taken just a couple of hundred miles above the Earth. The Denuri Moon image has to be taken far away in space so that you literally have rotated around the moon a quarter million miles away by some 20 degrees, meaning it was taken in the transit from a different perspective. And no artist could possibly 
have imagined that scenario. So that was my first clue that they were actually palming off as an art piece, a real photograph taken by the spacecraft en route, and they just put it out there so the world could see it, and nothing official was ever up to tonight has been said about it. There's no caption. There's no discussion. There's no presentation. It's not part of any South Korean space agency papers on the Denuri mission. It's just used as a kind of a, a background for their, you know, captions of the various parts of the mission. In other words, it's an extraordinary official leak with no attribution and no explanation of what it's really showing you. And for any amateur astronomer to look at that image or any professional astronomer to look at that image and say, what in the world are the Koreans doing? The moon never looks like that. The only thing that can look like that is a planet with an atmosphere. And we know from measurements for literally hundreds of years, the moon has no atmosphere. We know from the Apollo surface experiments, the moon has no atmosphere, certainly nothing thick enough to cause that optical effect. The only other thing it could be is the scattering of light in the lunar-wide set of domes I have been presenting for the last 10-plus years. And yet no astronomer, professional or amateur, has said anything on social media from anywhere in the world that I can find asking the Koreans, what the hell are you doing? Where did you get that image of the moon? And why aren't you telling us what it's showing? So now we go to number 12. What it's showing, of course, and this is not no real, this is a kind of a tongue-in-cheek made-up metaphor for me. Uh, on the right is the Druckmuller uh, 2008 Mongolia eclipse image, which shows the night side of the earth, the side away from the sun, the side that faces the earth, uh, you know, from the moon during an eclipse. On the left side is a similar scaled image of a cutaway onion. Why? Because the domes uh, around the moon, around the surface that we see in a white light image, are literally stacked on top of each other like the layers of an onion. And if you look at number 13, where I've done the metaphor uh, a little better in terms of rotating at 90 degrees. So you're looking with gravity down and, you know, space up. The, the top part is the uh, right side, the right-hand side of the Druckmuller image, merely enlarged. The central enlargement is the detail, the incredible architectural structural detail with layering upon layering upon layering vertically uh, extending you know, above the surface of the moon. And the bottom is the uh, enlargement of the cutaway onion showing what layering looks like. There is no way to get that layering on the moon through any, you know, digital trickery or any fakery or any misregistration or anything other than a photograph taken in the right light with the right kind of camera to record something that the human eye and all normal photographs up till now have not been able to 
record. Number 14 is a comparison on top, the Druckmuller image showing this incredible, and you want to click on all these because they get much bigger. Look at all that architectural detail, layer upon layer upon layer and cross beams and bracing and it's all glass and it's all made visible by the kind of imaging system that was used to take these images. And the bottom panel, that's an enlargement of the Nuri Moon image, which was inherently a very low resolution image taken by a wide angle camera very far away from the moon. But if you look carefully, you can see there is incipient layering in the Denuri image, there just isn't sufficient resolution to see the same details that was recorded during the 2008 eclipse by Druckmuller and company. And it all kind of comes together if you go now and click on that link at the bottom of the caption of image number 15 tonight, which Keith did a wonderful job of laying all this out so you can follow the, uh, the trail, because that goes directly to page seven of the PDF, which is a replication of the English version of the Denuri uh, mission uh, press kit. And that describes a camera specifically carried for the first time ever that we know from any space agency to lunar orbit to 60 miles up. And en route, this camera obviously was the camera used to take the image that you see in item 11 or in item number 10, because it's a polarimetric camera, meaning it takes images in what's called polarized light. Light has two properties. It is filterable in terms of wavelength. Long wavelengths in the optical spectrum are red. Short wavelengths are blue and violet. Well, light has another property that isn't generally discussed uh, in the civilian population because it's rare that it comes into play in terms of, you know, working with light in your normal everyday experience. The only people that are kind of familiar with this are drivers, truck drivers, vacationers, people out for trips in late afternoon, because they know that when they drive west looking at the setting sun, because of all the crud on most windshields, it becomes very difficult, if not impossible, and very dangerous to try to see the details of traffic through a windshield facing the sun because of the scattering of light. So that's where this second invisible property of light comes into play. Because in addition to having a wavelength, light also has what's called a vector, meaning it vibrates in particular geometric planes most light coming from the sun vibrates um, in a circle. In other words, it's radial in any direction you look, it's vibrating left and right, up and down, back and forth. And without the proper filtering, the light just is, appears as a featureless glare when it goes through glass. But if you put on a pair of Polaroid sunglasses, or you have what's called a polarizing filter you can hold up to the windshield and rotate left and right, you will be able to eliminate the glare from the surface of the glass and only look at the polarized frequencies of light that are coming through 
the glass. And that's how you can get rid of glare driving west at, at sunset, looking through a dirty windshield because the light coming off the windshield is polarized differently than the light coming through the windshield and Polaroid filtering or Polaroid sunglasses where Edwin Land created a commercial technology out of an obscure uh, physics reality in a lab there in Boston, the Polaroid Land Company, which also made the camera, remember the instant camera. It was Edwin Land who did that. Anyway, he created Polaroid sunglasses and it's the polarization of light that has allowed in a special camera and the details are in that link, item number 15, Everything you wanted to know about the Denuri polarizing camera is visible in that link. And you'll see that it covers a variety of wavelengths, but it also covers a variety of polarizing angles. And it is the first polar, polarimetric camera to be flown on any known mission to the moon. Now, what do you suppose the South Koreans are up to? But we'll save that for our conversation. Item number 16, um, what happens with the Earth, which is this incredible, fortuitous, stunning, science fact-turned technological revolution, is that when the sunlight bounces off the Earth, goes past the moon, is reflected from the night side of the moon, particularly during a total solar eclipse, and bouncing back to Earth so a camera can photograph it. It turns out that because the light reflecting off the oceans of the Earth and the atmosphere is like about 30 to 40% polarized, when it reaches the moon, because now tonight we can announce with absolute certitude the presence of all this structured glass, even in the shattered fragmentary remains uh, of what it used to be. That glass reflects almost 100% of this polarized light back to Earth. So the Earth light that I've been chasing on the night side of the moon during a total eclipse since my experiment way back when in 1970 with CBS News, which we talked about and we showed some video uh, on an earlier program, um, that light coming back, that earth light, that earth shine, that bluish, gorgeous view of the entire full moon seen in earth light is actually seen in polarized earth light because the lunar structures selectively reflect <clears throat> almost 100% at the right angle of that polarized light coming from the earth and the earth moon combination is the only planet in the solar system where this natural background reality obtains the only place you can see polarized light from another celestial body automatically naturally in the landscape is from earth's moon shining back to earth during a total eclipse of the sun if you have a sensitive enough camera. And we now have millions of people all over the earth, maybe billions, who have the sensitivity 
in a smartphone in their digital camera to be able to record during a total eclipse of the sun, the moon, forget the corona, they can record the moon and their pictures of the moon will show exactly the same stunning shell-like glass structure that Druckmuller recorded, not even knowing what he was doing in 2008 and in multiple other eclipses going forward and back that I've looked now carefully through his archive and found what I needed to find, which brings us to 17. It was a 1920s astronomer uh, whose name I think was, was Eddington, who was one of the first uh, confirmers of relativity in photographing eclipses. He said to his colleagues, um, gentlemen, I mean, he was a Victorian astronomer, so he said, gentlemen, he said, gentlemen, you do not have a science unless you can express it in numbers. Well, tonight, I am pleased to say that we literally can express the numbers of the dome numerically, mathematically, because if you click on item 17, it will take you to a paper about something in polarization studies called the Brewster Angle, named after a physicist, David Brewster, in 1815, who discovered that polarizing light bounces off reflecting objects, either glass or water or other fluids, uh, at different angles depending upon the refractive index, in other words, the composition of the transparent material. And glass has a very specific angle of reflection for polarization like we're seeing on the moon. That angle is 53 degrees. If you look at the right-hand version of my composite and you look at the gridding and the central line is zero, and then it's one, two, three, four, five, six. So you divide 90 by six, you'll see that the Brewster angle is what causes the sudden visibility of the dome in a circumference within the limb of the moon, but some distance from the center of the moon because the glass is glass and it's polarizing light the way Brewster found it. And in fact, this is the end of our discussion. When we come back, we're going to have one heck of a time talking to all our folks who have all kinds of questions, I'm sure, because they have not seen any of this until you had tonight. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Welcome to the future. Thank you. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, uh, eventually grading into Monday morning. What I'd like to do now is to introduce our, our uh, guest panel, uh, which is very simple, because under the banner at the top, there is a fast link to bios. I'll start in no particular order with Andrew, who um, there's details in the bios, so I'm not going to go through a huge <clears throat> amount here. Uh, Andrew is a uh, uh, artist. He has uh, worked for many, many uh, large Canadian companies and U.S. companies. He does Super Bowl commercials, you know, for the American market. He is um, he is a Bachelor of Arts from the University of British Columbia and a diploma in graphic design and a Master's in Art Therapy. Uh, Ruggiero Calo is a uh, Italian-English um, guy, uh, native Londoner, who moved to the south coast of England where he lives and works. He is a graduate of the University of Southampton's School of Health Profession Science in 2004. Uh, and um, if you wonder why he's part of the Enterprise team, it's because when the uh, Curiosity rover took a picture of uh, what looked like a femur uh, on the surface of Mars, given his podiatry background and given his professional health status, um, he also is one heck of an artist. He actually created the first professional image, artistic image of um, uh, this bone. And even though NASA keeps denying that it's a bone, it's a bone. And there are others that have joined it in, in the interim. And so he's gotten very interested in doing sketches for uh, the things, the various oddities and bizarre anomalies that we have been finding on Mars. Um, Jonathan Womack is with us. Um, he is a very experienced out-of-body expert. He began going out-of-body back in 1965. He'll be part of our program with Russell Targ, which we were supposed to have last night. And because of unfortunate circumstances, we had to postpone it again. It will now take place next Saturday night, the 4th of February. And John will be part of our uh, our panoply of guests that night. Um John is an independent thinker and an independent scientist. Um, he, be, he actually started uh, looking at a double math major in, in science and a minor in English literature. And he kind of 
held on for a year or so at DePaul University on a scholarship, but he grew very disillusioned um, and was kicked out of school during his second semester due to conflicts with teachers who tend to be more like programmers than uh, uh, teachers. And I discovered that myself and others have. Ron, Gerbron uh, discovered that. So he is kind of an independent, free-thinking citizen scientist with expertise in imaging, computer graphics, uh, music, filmography. He's working on an amazing documentary, which I'm hoping will see the light of day in the next uh, few months. And of course, he knows imaging. So that's why he's part of our kind of jury tonight to look at the crazy stuff that uh, I talk about all the time. And uh, that's where he comes in. Now, we've got Robert Morningstar with us. Uh, Robert is a um, kind of a civilian imaging analyst. He has an extraordinary background. I don't see his bio, Keith, so we probably need to put his bio up there. Oh, there it is. There it is. Sorry. Never mind. Never mind. I found it. He is a specialist in photo interpretation, geometric analysis, and computer imaging. And he's also a private pilot. Um, I would not be surprised if he knows some of the intricacies of polarized light and polarizing cameras and filters because when you fly a lot, uh, glare and sunlight are a constant problem as is glare off the surface, like from lakes and oceans, et cetera, et cetera. So we will find out shortly if he is as good at that part as he is at many other things. And last not but not least, we've got uh, Ron Gerbron. Ron is a proudly uncredentialed polymath. In other words, he's a generalist. His real interest is in, of course, archaeology on Mars. But I've kind of pressed him into service tonight to talk about this interesting thing having to do with timekeeping on the moon, which tells me politically that they're getting ready for a major inhabitation of the moon, in which case they cannot for long ignore what is over their heads, because if they don't know how to find the holes with the right polarizing imagery, they will crash and we will kill more astronauts in the service to humanity. And I don't think anybody wants to do that. So that's why I think there are two very special cameras on the South Korean mission flying around the moon tonight. One is the uh, pole cam, the polarizing camera from the South Korean space agency. And the other is a so-called shadow cam from our good old uh, uh, friend, Dr. Michael Malin, who released his first picture. And the picture is not exactly what I would have expected. And uh, I don't want to forget Barbara Honiger. Barbara is our one political person on the panel tonight. She also has a degree in uh, hyperdimensional parapsychology. Um, I don't like the term parapsychology because it makes it sound like it's apart from psychology when it's probably at the foundation of human psychology. And she served in the Reagan White House and was a high-level uh, policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director currently of the uh, uh, Attorney General's Law Review uh, the Department of Justice back then, and now she is involved heavily with the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Truth. And uh, next week on the Sunday show, when we're doing the of Things to Come in 2023, Part 2, we will have an update from her uh, sojourn with the committee and what happened to them 
uh, during their sojourn at the Supreme Court. I think I have covered everybody, and I've got two slides left, but I'm not going to go into them now. They'll be part of our normal conversation for the rest of the morning because they have to do with how we can involve a lot of ordinary people in verifying all of this amazing stuff. So I want to go to uh, my first victim, I'm sorry, my first guest tonight, Andrew, because Andrew has been busily sketching as an artist what I've been seeing in the imagery, and it's time, Andrew, to report. What have you found since we have not compared notes? Andrew? Unmuting helps. I can hear him. Okay, I'm not hearing him at all. Oh. Hello, Richard. Andrew? Hello. There you are. Okay. By the way, I'm, I'm, I did not forget Mike Hill, but Mike Hill comes in a little later on, so I'm going to give him a special intro uh, by himself because of what he brings to the table. So, Andrew, what have you found in looking at these astonishing images? Good God. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. <laughs> um, well, yeah. Do they also say that Ron was, in, in addition to being a general, he's also a curmudgeon? That's his official <laughs> role? We're even going well, to give him a give hat. Give me an opening. I'll say you have an interesting way of introducing somebody first. Okay. As per our conversation last night, I thought, oh, good, I get to say. No, you don't get to go first. Beginning. Sorry, Andrew. Please. Uh, okay. As you can see, this is like herding cats, folks. And sometimes the cats are a little bit um, feisty. Andrew, please. Yeah, well, everybody's bursting to say something. I know <laughs> I heard Barbara earlier, too, and uh, it's always a little hard on Skype because we kind of um, dampen out each other. Uh, I'll make it quick, Richard. My items aren't up yet because I was a little tardy to the party. Oh. Uh, but um, you might want to go to someone else. But I'm going to tell you, um, my observations are there are layers. There are concentric layers and I did do a comparison. Uh, well, I've done a few comparisons with my sketches and kind of close-ups and what I'm seeing. Um, within those concentric sort of shells, there is structure, just as you sort of laid out. If you go in really close, okay. and as I've said many, many times um, on this show, you have to sort of sit with this material. You have to look at this material. You kind of have to submerge yourself in it. And what? Oh, oh my stuff is up. <laughs> Oh, okay. Let so, me let me click on your stuff. Okay. There we are. Yeah. So if you go to my number one, uh, I call it stripping back the layers. And what I did is you zoom in a little bit. Um, the first image is is actually from the post. Oh, I'm hearing someone in the background. Yeah. Okay. Someone needs to mute their mic, please. Go ahead. Yeah, and the first image is I sort of isolated the moon you have on the show banner, and which was the eclipse image. Yeah, and this is a black from, and white version of what I call the Druckmuller moon taken in 2008 when the eclipse uh, totality path crossed uh, Mongolia. You can't get more and, remote than that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I turned it to black and white because I wanted to get a more even sort of contrast. And I see it with the color. But if people look to the edge, just like Richard outlined in one of his numbers, it's literally like we're seeing. Oh, if you click onion. on it, it gets much bigger, and you can – oh, the layers are brilliantly visible. Yeah. Brilliantly. And scroll down to my second image, and you'll see that I've 
kind of applied some some lines. What I did is I sort of traced what I'm seeing as repeating uh, concentric lines. Um, very rough, but it gives you a sense of, you know, in case people can't really see the edge, well, edge, the, the, the limb of the moon. And if you scroll down to my final image, what I did is I clicked out the moon and sort of did, again, kind of these, this rough idea of what those layers kind of look like, at least from this particular angle. It's, this is just a, a very simple kind of a rough way to look at it, but this is what you're seeing. So when you scroll back to the first image, the, the, you, you can now begin, if you zoom in, and whether it's the show banner, this image, or one of Richard's shots, you will see these layers. I mean, it's, it's clear to me. I, I don't know how else to explain it other than it looks like layers. So, <laughs> I, I don't know how else. Well, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, come on, folks. It's a damn dome around the moon. Well, unless somebody can give a better explanation, which I've asked you repeatedly. I've asked Ron. I've asked others. Is NASA saying anything? Are the Koreans saying anything? Is anybody, is anybody in all these wonderful little forums and their little, okay, I'll be careful here, <laughs> on, on their forums and trying to be so scientific, et cetera, saying anything? And what's the answer you give me every time, Richard? Crickets. Yes, exactly. So we come out of number one, pop into number two. And what I did is I took a piece of, so my top top image is just like a slice or a, little quarter section of the same uh, eclipse moon. And then I zoomed in tighter so you can click on that. And I mean, just look at the repeating patterns in the zoomed image that I, I sort of tilted it a little, not tilted, I rotated it a little bit, uh, I guess maybe 10 degrees to mm -hmm. the left and to straighten it out. And if you come down to my image, I did a little simple drawing, but again, there's these repeating patterns what I'm starting to see are cross sections now, Richard. I mean, very kind of intricate cross beam. I mean, it's all shattered and messed up. Mm -hmm. but to me, to me, I'm seeing multi layers. I'm seeing crisscrossing. I'm seeing a mess. But it's, uh, I mean, it's almost cellular in its its kind of look. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of what what I you know what what I see. And if we come out of that. And we go to my number three. Now, this is very interesting. You and I got talking about this. It's uh, Oh, the well, famous Pomodoro sphere. I was looking for that the other day in my archive, yes. and I couldn't find it. Well, it's very interesting what you said. So what I did here, let me explain in case the, some of the listeners aren't viewing, and you should. You should go to the other side of midnight.com, hit the show banner, come to my items. I should have said this off the top, and you can come to my number three. What I did is took the same little sketch, which has the very simple uh, drawing of these repeating, uh, again, crisscrossing imagery. And I compared it to, yes, the, the, the Italian sculptor, um, Ar what is it, Arnaldo Pomodoro. Richard, I have to read you something because I was very curious because every image I saw of this ball, this, this sculpture, seemed to have a different background. And I, I, I hope you just give me a minute to. Yeah, to, sure. I, so, yeah. So I looked up um, a website called joyofmuseums.com, and I found a little article here. And I won't read the whole thing. I'll just read a couple excerpts. So this is called "Sphere Within a Sphere." This is the ball that people are seeing. And if you notice, the ball has like um, broken. Uh, how, how do we describe this, Richard? It's, it's like a, a shell that's busted, and there's like a layer. You can see. It like, looks like layered within. machinery. Yes, yes, which is what he was doing. But listen to this. Um, 
Sphere within within Sphere, also known as Sfera Consera, is a series of sculptures created by sculptor Arnaldo Pomodoro. The sculpture depicts an enormous metal sphere with a cracked surface revealing an intricate interior with another cracked sphere inside. Now, to your point, Richard, the internal layers resemble the gears or cogwheels of a machine that symbolizes the complexity of the world. Okay, here's the artist doing his or her thing. The fractured cracks symbolize the fragility of our society. Pomodoro began his series of spheres in the 1960s with, with sphere number one and has continued for nearly 40 years designing the globe-like pieces, each depicting different maps of destruction. I'm going to skip ahead because I want to read you something. <laughs> Listen to the number of locations that these spheres are now in. And this man is 96 years old. He's still living and working in Milano, Italy, Milan. Okay, listen. This, his, his, these sculptures, various depictions of it, are at the Vatican Museum's Rome, Palazzo della Farnesina, Rome, Piazza della Liberta, Pesaro, Italy, Trinity College, Dublin, United Nations Headquarters, New York City, Virginia Muse Museum of Fine Arts, Richmond, Virginia, Hershorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, Washington, D.C., Christian Theological Seminary, Indianapolis, Columbus Museum of Art, Columbus, Ohio, the Young Museum, San Francisco, American Enterprise Group Incorporated, National Headquarters, Des Moines, Iowa, um, Tehran Museum of Contemporary Art, Tehran, Des Moines Art Center, Des Moines, Hakone Open Air Museum, Hakone, University of California, Berkeley, Tel Aviv, University, Tel Aviv. <laughs> yeah. He's um, been busy. He's just well, cranking these puppies out. Richard, if I, I really insist people have a look at this guy because there's a lot more going on here. And it's a very interesting, there's, there's a quote I want to, I want to grab here. Um, listen to this. The artist's initial vision was the inner ball represented the earth and the outer ball represented our institutions. Okay. Pomodoro has stated, quote, a sphere is a marvelous object from the world of magic wizards, whether it is of a crystal or bronze or full of water. It reflects everything around it, creating such contrast that it sometimes is transformed becoming invisible <laughs> leaving only its interior tormented and eroded full of teeth i couldn't believe it when i read that ron, uh, ron, uh, ron robert richard whoever wants to speak this is like 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 um like uh photocopying the moon with this dome all over the planet i mean it's it's right there or at least a previous time and as we've talked about in on in this ancient solar system where and ron you you uncovered another dome planet in our solar system where this may have been a kind of a normal thing i i'm just saying i'm not, I'm not saying that's what it is but this guy's really fascinating uh, Andrew, question, yes. since you study these, and I, you got me there with Pomodoro. I've never seen these before. Uh, really? Are, are they all – really? Okay. Um, yeah. The, uh, I'm uh, – are they all the same size? No, I think they're, they're – uh, from the pictures, Ron, they look all various various sizes. I mean, they're, okay. they all have like a inner ball, which he says represents the Earth, and then this is all the – 
wear and tear of life that ended up. But the, the fact is he's been doing this for over 40 years, repeating the same darn theme again and again and again. And you can say, oh, Andrew, that's no big deal. It's just a something that struck him success. It's like putting McDonald's on every you know landscape because it's... No, just, I, think I, I think you know why I asked. Because, for instance, uh, Rodin's The Thinker, you know, which is... Bronzes are st- bronzes are statues. They are sculptures. You know, as is this, whatever it's made out of, and those are all the same size. Mm. You know, there's, no, there's like, it, it's an addition. You know, there's like 15 of them. I think, uh, maybe more, at least 15. But this, yeah, I, you rattled off what uh, a couple of dozen names there. So there's even more of these. Yeah, and very interesting places from the Vatican to the United Nations. I mean, it's it's an, it's really interesting, and it's Again, Richard, I think we're looking at an ancient yeah. memory. And I think, um, you know, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's kind of where I wanted to go with, with my, my work. I, uh, for me, it's very real. I see it. In fact, I'm doing a sketch right now <laughs> as we've been talking that, you know, maybe towards the end of the show, I'll post and, you know, I'm uh, well, another surprise if, if we have time. The thing I'm intrigued like with. War- I was just going to say it looks like one of the war machines at the end of the uh, in, uh, last episode of the uh, Marvel movies. It seems to mm-hmm. me to be implying manufactured worlds like habitats, like space structures exactly. that are machine-based, yeah. that, yeah. that are not natural, that are, you know. Now, look at, look at your sketch above the Pomodoro sphere yes. in three. The yeah, thing yeah. that's so impressive to me is notice what I call buttressing. Mm-hmm. If if you build everything vertical, it will sway back and forth. That's why when you look at roller coasters and their trusses, their frameworks, there's all kinds of cross bracing at yes. significant angles. Well, if we're all making this stuff up, whoever did this engineered on a scale of miles cross breaking uh, bracing to hold up a multi-layered glass set of shells around the surface of the moon that we can see and as well, you as you intimated ron found separately from me that these same guys appear to have done the same thing to ganymede which is ganymede. the largest moon of jupiter and because of the juno mission and these close flybys not planned when they started but now part of the extended Juno mission and a camera they put on kind of like an afterthought. It wasn't even part. It's, it's one of those throwaway, you know, Oh, let's put some, a camera on there for pretty publicity pictures for the general unwashed, the public, you know, the folks that pay for all this stuff. And that camera has revealed stunning new details of the dome around Ganymede that someday we will, you know, put a whole show together and we will lay out Ron and I because it's stunning and it's visible in much better detail because, frankly, it's much less eroded than what happened in the inner solar system, which is a clue that takes us back to Van Flandern's model of the ancient, ancient explosion of Planet Four. Okay, Ron, we're coming to you. Yeah. Because if you go up to my... Uh, and I'll come back to the last two items, Andrew, okay? You go up to my items, and you look at item number three, which is the whole thing about time. Um, 
Ron, what was your take when you saw this appear the other day in the midst of this sudden flurry of returns to the moon after half a century of total neglect? Uh, I was very puzzled at why would there be an article that says, uh, that is the title of the article, what time is it on the moon? And then they had this whole thing about establishing a time standard for the moon. And this is the first time I've seen anybody in the space program taking that so seriously. I had that thought before I even tried to figure out why would they do it, you know, specifically for what they did. What they're specifically doing is they're placing three atomic clocks on the moon. And then they're going to average the to register the time because owing to the lower density of the moon uh, the uh, and the difference in gravity, uh, time moves slightly differently there. You know, if, it, uh, if you're wearing a watch and you're in uh, ISIS, when you come home, your watch is out of sync with everybody's watches here. You uh, aged differently. And uh, so they were, they wanted to have a time standard as Richard at least instantly realized, well, you need that for laboratory purposes. You need that baseline. Uh, but they, I found it interesting that there's three of them. Now, three is very, very stable in a physical sense. A three-legged stool is the most stable thing one could sit Do on. they? I haven't had time to really read the details. Do they say anywhere in the in the paper where on the moon they're going to place them, like equilateral near the equator at three equidistant points, 120 degrees apart, like on the near yeah. side and the far side? Or are they going to space them around the side of the moon, the near side facing Earth, in some kind of equilateral triangle? That's such a perfect question. No, they don't, <laughs> they don't give a hint. Uh, so that maybe they're still figuring that part out, which brought me back to the stability of a three-legged milk stool uh, again. Also a dolman, by the way. Remember, that's the burial monument thing that is basically uh, a flat stone sitting on top of three stones. They don't even have to be very regular. The point is, if you have three contact points to carry the weight, uh, like I said, you can't get more stable than that. Everything else has extra possible vectors of uh, falling over <laughs> that uh, three-point uh, three don't. So somehow there's a physical connection. And uh, what they're up to, uh, is it a gigantic um, um, virtual telescope array, you know, that uh, brings together uh, measurements from satellite spaced across the solar system? Uh, you know, just think of it, take a dozen copies of the Webb telescope and space them as far apart as the um, um, halfway across the entirety of the solar system. And you could, if you uh, synthesize all that information, then you could pretty much read the um, label on a can of beans on a nearby star's planet. Mm-hmm. You know, so... With a big uh, enough array, yeah. Yeah. But see, what and, I'm finding uh, interesting is there is currently tonight an atomic clock orbiting the moon that nobody knows about. <clears throat> it was one of the uh, piggyback experiments on the capstone, very Pauline 
Perils of Pauline mission, unmanned, you know, 55-pound mission launched last summer, and it arrived in, uh, in I think, November uh, after lots of near misses and almost disappearing and all that. Um, yeah. And it's got an atomic clock. I, I dare you to find out any information of the world's first atomic clock orbiting the moon in the same orbit as the Artemis program's gateway lunar space station is going to be orbiting because I guarantee you what they're doing, despite all of the, you know, follow all in that, in that uh, story, they're really measuring the hyperdimensional torsion field physics of the moon. And again, like they always do, they're just not telling us. Well, anyway, have, we are at the uh, have, we are at the bottom of the hour, so hold it there. My guests this morning, too numerous to mention, go to the other side of midnight, and you'll see Andrew and Ron and Robert and Barbara and uh, Michael and all those other folks. Uh, as I said, we're going to save Michael's intro for a little later in the program when we, as the lawyers, you'll have to say, laid foundation. When we return, we've got Barbara waiting in the wings and Robert Morningstar and. Um, you're on the other side of midnight. It's a Sunday night here in the land of enchantment. The weather has warmed up a lot. I'm actually not freezing with only two heaters in the studio. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on the uh, other side of midnight, on the dark side of the moon, courtesy of Pink Floyd. What what an album! What a what a. And the thing that really gets me is that their primary cover of the album was a prism splitting white light into its rainbow colors, the same colors that Alan Bean painted 
for the latter part of his decades on earth, spreading the word at some incredible subliminal level that this glittering glass overhead splashes incredible iridescent rainbows all across the surface of what everyone has been sold in terms of the bill of goods is supposed to be a dead gray moon. Which leads me to Barbara Honiger, who as an incredibly generous person and who donated to the Enterprise mission and our research, including now this campaign to bring these results to the general public, a stunning Alan Bean print, see I finally learned, which has been signed by 24 of the historical astronauts for the United States who opened up the spaceways from Mercury to Gemini to Apollo to the space shuttle itself. Um, And unfortunately, he died before he could include any of the Artemis generation. So they will have to create their own multi-level artwork of what's really there when they are shocked to find out it's not exactly the way they've been told. So Barbara, say something. Can you hear me? Five by. Can you hear me? Yes. Oh, good. <laughs> okay. Um, um, first thing is I had asked Keith to post um, the image of the Alan Bean print uh, as my item. It's not up yet, so if Keith could do that quickly, that would be appreciated with the text underneath that we've posted in previous shows. Um, but for now, if people just go to the home page, um, if you go to the uh, main, uh, the other side of midnight.com and right at the top, click on the word home for the home page, scroll down just a little bit and you will see an image of the uh, Alan Bean prints and the um, uh, what you need to do in order to donate and eventually own the print if you uh, end up being the highest donor when Richard meets his goal. Um, So maybe uh, Keith could post that. I would like to make a couple of comments based upon what's been said in the program, if that's all right. By all means. I first want to remind you, uh, the next next time we have a moon show – uh, and you um, and you give a thumbnail of my background and my bio. Be sure and mention that I held the NASA portfolio in the Domestic Policy Council in the Reagan White House, okay? Because that's what's most relevant. Um, the other things you mentioned are not nearly as relevant to this program. Um, but the other thing I want to um in your item number two, Richard, tonight, um, where it's the article, Earth's inner core may have paused its rotation and reversed, by which you learn, if you read the article, that it may have slightly gone backwards in its rotation. Um, There's a statement um, in this article that says, as the molten iron and nickel in the outer core of the Earth moves, they create the magnetic fields. Well, I happen to know, I happen to, um, one of my partners in a past incarnation, single lifetime of mine, 
was at the Washington Research Center in San Francisco while I was getting my parapsychology degree, um, Saul Paul Sarag. Saul Paul Sarag is an amazing self, self-taught. self uh, Oh, I haven't talked to him in years. Yeah, mathematical physicist. You should have Saul Paul on your show. Oh, my God. But anyway, Saul Paul published some amazing peer-reviewed articles, including one called Gravimagnetism. And what he proved in that paper, which I will find and send to be added to my items for tonight. Uh, Keith could do that when I find it and send it. It'll have to be after after tonight's show. Um, what Saul Paul proved in that peer-reviewed paper, um, published in something like Astronomical Physics, um, but what he showed is that if you take any mass, and in this case where he was talking about the planets in the solar system, if you take any mass, even a little tiny pinpoint of a mass, or a huge planet, doesn't matter. You take any mass, the very act of spinning it creates a gravitational field that is proportional to the mass. Now, what's important about that is if you've got the Earth with an inner almost purely solid iron core that's spinning slightly differently and of a different mass than the mantle and the crust. You've basically got three separate interlocking magnetic fields. So um, the magnetic field of the Earth, Saul Paul proved, is not just the result of um, of the outer core rotating and creating an electrical current that in turn results in a magnetic field. There are three separate magnetic fields. Okay, they're of different... They're of what? I'm sorry, what? No, you, you, you broke up there for a moment. Okay, well, I think I made the point, um, is that this article is incorrect in, in, in there. And I also figured out why it's in the hill. Um, it was originally published by Nexstar. This is your item number two right. tonight's show. Um, it was originally published by a publication called Nexstar, N-E-X-S-T-A-R, and simply republished by The Hill. But I think the reason The Hill chose to publish it has everything to do with our uh, rivalry with China, because um, these findings are by two Chinese physicists at Peking University in Beijing. That would be my my guess as to as to that. Hmm. So anyway, we we encourage everybody um, to to go to I believe if you go to the homepage right now and scroll down a little bit, there's a place to click and donate uh, to this um, very exciting uh, project to get as much of this information to the public as possible. And uh, so be sure and do that, and then pretty soon an even more a complete uh, list of all of the names of the 20 or 23, 23 or 24 astronauts that have physically signed this print by Alan Bean called Reaching for the Stars. Uh, that is the, the centerpiece of this, uh, of this fundraising campaign for the Enterprise mission. So be sure and go there. So that's it for me for now. Super. Okay, Robert Morningstar, <clears throat> I want you to talk about your Polish... Uh, paper moon discovery and in in terms of this new incredibly intriguing polarization data which allows us now to see things that not only experts can see 
but anybody can see, and that's going to be part of our campaign going forward, because I want to educate people during the coming total solar eclipse in 2024, uh, I believe in April, that millions of people along the eclipse path can literally photograph this this stunning dome for themselves, and then Druckmuller has offered to process the imagery if it's good enough. So it won't be just smartphone imagery. It'll have to be decent optics, telescopes, that kind of thing. But there's a kind of an open invitation from him to process citizen imagery of the moon. And I'm not sure tonight whether he really realizes what his incredibly detailed algorithms have revealed. So, Robert, what are your thoughts? Uh, well, that's great. I, I do want to talk about Druckmeyer's Druckmeier, uh, <clears throat> photo. talk. I want to talk a little bit about lunacy. You mentioned at the opening of the show, these really, uh, the mass shootings in Los Angeles and Half Moon Bay. And I, uh, I used to work for the Daily News, and I had a lot of contact with cops. And the cops told me that at uh, full moon and new moon, they get on an extra alert because there is a proven effect on criminality and violence. The interesting thing about these two mass shootings in California are that they were both by, done by Orientals around the time of the Chinese New Year. Of their own community. The, yeah, the fellow who did the Los Angeles mass shootings was a 73-year-old uh, Vietnamese which, he, which, if you do your calculations, you realize that he's of age to have been very active in the Vietnam War. And the second man, really strangely, the Half Moon Bay killer, he killed the uh, owner of his business because the business owner demanded $100 from him for, to repair a forklift that he had been working for many, many years. He was 63 years old. So I think that both of these men were triggered by different things, but I cannot escape uh, the notion that the lunar cycle, the lunar new year, obviously the lunar new year celebrations were really disrupted by uh, Hu Can Tran, which is a Vietnamese name. And of course, there's inveterate hatred between the Vietnamese and the Chinese for a thousand years. So that would constitute a hate crime. And we cannot overlook the mania that overtook the Memphis policeman who killed Tyree uh, Nichols, a, a terrible, terrible yeah, on, thing. On the, so seven, on, the, on the 7th of January. That, that, that happened on the 7th of January. Well, well, Dr. Martin Luther King died for civil rights. And it's just a terrible, terrible irony that five black policemen killed Tyree Nichols. Now, with regard to, uh, so that's it on lunacy, but the moon does have powerful effects on the psyche and perceptions. I told you during the last uh, lunar eclipse, I was out on Broadway and all of a sudden New York City spun twice and the sidewalk started to turn into marshmallow. I had been up for about 20 hours too, but it's something that's never happened to me before. Now with regard to the moon, and what you call the dome, and I would prefer to call a shell. Um, I have spoke to you a couple of weeks ago, and I told you my theory about how it was formed. First of all, going back to Corona, I'd like to tell the audience that I was very skeptical of Richard's theory of this, what I'll call a shell, 
for geometric reasons. Well, it's multiple shells. It's got yeah. Well, yeah, shells, shells, and shells, and shells. But I told Richard uh, a couple of weeks ago that I thought that this had been formed by a solar flare, and Richard uh, disagreed with me. <laughs> but just recently, um, just recently, I finished doing a book review of a book coming, Catching the uh, Ascension Wave by Bob Frizzell, who's a very talented writer. And he provided me with a little bit of uh, backing for my theory that this could have been done by a solar flare. So I will read you this short paragraph with a very familiar name as uh, supporting my theory. Solar flash are also part of the geological history and are associated with pollutions. Robert Schock, associate professor of natural sciences at Boston University, explained that ice cores samples from Greenland show that there was a solar burst or flare recorded at the end of the last ice age, about 9700 BCE. He estimated that this flare had 40 times the power of the 1859 Carrington event, the one that knocked out the technology of the day, the telegraph systems. Um, I'll leave it there. And I will now talk about... Well, wait, but uh, before we leave the subject, let me tell you why I think it's cuckoo. Or Cocoa Puffs, which is the phrase. Because you can't get geometry out of glazed glass. Tommy Gold, when the astronauts reported that the interiors of some of the craters in Apollo 11 had sheets of glass, you know, literally sheets of melting glass that had frozen, that had solidified, he came up with the idea of the super mega solar flare being focused by the crater like a like like a like a parabolic mirror and that was it but you don't get vertical structures that are tens of miles high with intricate bracing geometry you just don't maybe not maybe to um to i'm being disturbed by a little buzz around here so let me that's my little okay i'm going to tell you something the Druckmeyer photograph, Druckmuller, excuse me, is remarkable. And I saw that effect with my naked eyes. In 1994, we had an annular eclipse that came uh, over New York, not over New York City. So I, uh, I was a member of a uh, flying club and I rented a plane and I flew to Saratoga, New York, just in time to catch um, the annular eclipse of May 1994. And you know the saying, no man looks on the face of the Gorgon and lives. Mm-hmm. I, I took my eye. I took great, great line from Forbidden Planet. <clears throat> yeah, right. Well, I dared to look at the face of the Gorgon and live, but it screwed my eyes up for a little while, but I fortunately... You know who else did that during the eclipse in 2017? Who? Donald Trump. No kidding. There's there's video of him standing out there with Melania, and they're both looking without any uh, glasses at the naked yeah. sun before totality. Uh, well, I think it was more dangerous for me because mine was the um, an annular eclipse, and that's when the moon is a bit smaller than the sun. Right. Now, here's a couple of things that I have to tell you. Light has the ability to wrap around objects. And this effect that Druckmuller caught in his photograph 
I saw that with my naked eyes. And it was being caused by prismatic uh, effects of and what I was concentrating on was the northern hemisphere of the moon where I saw jagged peaks all around the moon. I saw jagged mountain peaks that were acting as gigantic prisms. And the effect that it had here on Earth was remarkable. One of the most remarkable effects was that everything started to cast at least 100 shadows. And each of the shadows was of a different color. Red, green, blue. Um, leaves on trees. There were thousands of leaves, iridescent leaves. Shadows of leaves were iridescent on the ground. The other remarkable thing that happened, and this, this speaks to the idea of things being there, really there, that you can't see. And what I'm talking about was when the eclipse reached totality, clouds appeared in the sky that were not visible when the regular sun was shining. And all of these clouds that appeared, you, talk, you hear about uh, every cloud has a silver lining. <laughs> well, every cloud had a rainbow lining. Yeah, well, that's the refraction through the glass of the dome. Exactly, exactly. So, um, Prismatic. I congratulate you. I think that you've really been very persevering and methodical. And I think you've given uh, great substance to this idea that the, uh, the moon has several layers of glass shelves around it. And it is, uh, that's very gratifying. As I said, I began as a skeptic, uh, you know, when I first heard you talking about the Corona pictures. And I thought that could have been, uh, you know, editing or uh, developing artifacts or something. But over the years, you've uh, come around with more and more. And then, of course, you know, the, the key was uh, my discovery of that, the first true color photograph of the moon that was published in that Polish newspaper, uh, excuse me, magazine, astronomy magazine, and then also in uh, the June 30th edition of Time magazine. And it became the APD, the Apollo, I'm sorry, the astronomical image of the day at NASA headquarters. Right. And that photograph as well has a tremendous blue ring around the entire (laughs) moon with a couple of gaps, as I call missing teeth, gaps Mm -hmm. in in the southern the southern hemisphere. So I think that you've got uh, you've got a lot of proof now that your theory is sound. Well, my problem is uh, the the journals will not publish this, of course. So I have no. to go more difficult route, which is a, a a a book, part of my series. You know, the mysteries of Mar- monuments of Mars, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm working on. I've got two publishers tonight. I can announce that are kind of the uh, you know playing off against each other. They're in a kind of a bidding situation. And so what I'd like to do is have the book finished before Musk sends his nine artists to the moon, because the NASA astronauts, of course, are not going to pay attention until they crash and die. But the civilians and Musk himself, since he and Joe Rogan spent like half an hour talking about my work and publishing the Monuments of Mars, et cetera, in terms of the book cover. I think we can get to Musk, and I talked to a British friend of mine who's going to uh, invite the British photographer on his television show, uh, which is on Murdoch's uh, Sky News. And so one way or the other, we're going to get this data to the people who were unfettered by legalisms, who all they have to do is take polarizing filters. 
to see and photograph. And then what they can do? They can transmit those images live back to all the planet Earth by what? By Musk's Twitter. Well, uh, congratulations on the publishing. I would recommend or suggest that you try to get those publishers to make your book a coffee table book. With, oh, no, uh, the photographs book. have got to be a huge part of this. And got to be color yeah. and yep, uh, yep, yep. large size. And you can get really, really, really cheap. You can get really, really uh, cheap printing uh, for a book of that nature. And guess where you can get it printed? Incredibly cheap, but incredibly high quality. Uh, regarding polarization, uh, yes, I have had a lot of experience with it, and I do recommend those uh, eagle eyes and the solar shields for uh, for uh, cars. Uh, you know, what you put on your the visor uh, thingies on the visor because uh, there were times in New York where I was driving right into the sun; you could hardly see anything. And fortunately, I had bought one of those flip-down visors. And when I looked through it, I could see everything clearly. Another thing that uh, was intriguing to me when I was a student pilot, um, and this also bears on the subject of things really being there and you can't see them. And this has to do with the propeller of an airplane. When you get into the airplane, you know, you see the propeller solid. And you see it spin around. But when it gets cranking, it disappears. However, the propeller appears when the sun is behind you. And you see a gleam on certain uh, certain surfaces at a mm-hmm. particular angle. At an it's angle. It's a really interesting effect. It's the Brewster, the Brewster angle. Yeah, the Brewster angle. That's where I was going to go. That the propeller's angle um, that cuts through the air, making the propulsion, mm-hmm. is acting in uh, as a in a prismatic as a reflection, as opposed to a transmission. Right. The polarization right. shows up in all those modes: transmission right. in fluids. Or, 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 you know, refractive solids and reflection. Right. It's a pretty gleam. It's a pretty gleam. And it's, uh, yeah. it's always at a particular angle to the sun, depending on uh, the time of day. I mean, can you imagine if we can give millions of people the ability to simply look up with their eyes with a pair of binoculars and see something that none of the officials are acknowledging is real yet? Yeah. Yep. Now, I have one more thing. About that. I'm going to save it for when Michael Lee Hill comes on, because last week... I remote viewed the skull, the crystal skull. Oh. And I got inside and I saw some amazing things. And I was given a deep understanding of what the crystal skull represents. I'll just tease you. I'll tease you right here. Imagine a magnet for light, something that pulls light from all the regions of the universe, like a lens, and concentrates it. I'll leave it there. Until later in the program. Hey, Robert? Yes. Yes, Ron. Uh, Go ahead. Since, yeah, yeah, since you brought it up, you introduced it, actually, when you mentioned the Jagged Mountains. And, yep. Richard, this is you, too. Uh, you guys haven't tied in what happens when you view the Terminator, uh, you know, as the shadow crosses the crosses the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there have been many reports, and you don't need a sodium filter to look at it without ruining your eyes. Uh, like a solar event, uh, the sparkles, which is obviously from glass, and uh, even prismatic effects uh, often. Yeah, I've got thousands of pictures of that. I know. But but we only have I a three-hour. That's why I got to do a book. And and Robert's absolutely right. It's got to be a coffee table book. It's got to be high quality. And the com- phrase you didn't complete, Robert, is to you know where you can get this printed. 
so people can afford it to buy it? China. 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 Talk about irony. Talk about the yeah. ultimate irony. Because remember, the Chinese want to own the moon. And there's a whole uh, article I was going to post tonight, and I forgot about the Chinese you know, space program and their long-range objectives. They know exactly what's there, and they've got their little beating red hearts on those libraries. And we you know dare not let them the get ahead. What? You know, you know why they think they own the moon? Well, Chang'e. Yeah. The Chinese believe that any place that the Chinese set its foot on becomes China. And so Chang'e, the alchemist, uh, who was taken to the moon by a six-foot-tall Chinese rabbit. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you too. Or known so, in those um, movies as Harvey. Plus, plus the experience of the Tang Emperor Xuan Tsung during the Tang Dynasty, who was taken to the moon by the moon people and entertained on the moon by fairies dancing in resplendent rainbow-colored garments and heard, heard celestial music that he brought back to Earth the next day when the people, the moon people, brought him back down in the moon ship, and that gave birth to Tai Chi Chuan. A story for another time, but uh, we're getting closer to the truth every week on this program. Yep. Yep. And so, uh, later. Quasi wabbits. Yeah. Quasi wabbits here. Hey guys, we are literally at the uh, top of the hour, so I don't want to over go on my breaks. My guest this morning too numerous to mention. You need to go to the other side of midnight, click on their bios and their detailed backgrounds on all of them. They are our um, generalists, citizen scientists, one and all, and they really form the perfect jury of our peers as to the reality of what is on the moon. And believe me, it's nothing like NASA's been telling you. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial. Georgia is coming up. Our resident metaphysician, Michael Hill. Michael has an artifact, a stunning hyperdimensional artifact en route in a private mission which is going to land in the near future within weeks if not months on the moon and he's going to tell us all about it when we return don't touch that dial And who denies it's what the 
Sorry about that. 
Uh, Go ahead, no Michael. Worries. Can you hear me? I can hear everybody we, now. Um, yeah. yeah. We all heard you. So what happened was um, this being on the History Channel um, and uh, them showing the footage I've filmed and having my blood work done actually led to a face-to-face meeting with these beings. And they said, we have been known as the Anunnaki in your past. And they actually told me who I was known as in the past, but I'm not going to get into that. Too many names, you know, I'm cool with Mike. But anyhow, um, at this time, I was contacted... Here's some really good guitar work. <laughs> Oops, I forgot to mute my mic. Sorry. Oh, God. That sounded really nice. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, so uh, at this point, I was contacted by the NSA's remote viewers slash reverse engineering team, and they offered me a course of study. And um, simultaneously is when I met these beings. They said they were once known as the Anunnaki. I'm putting this into a very... Uh, quick nutshell here and um, in this course of study uh, with the Anunnaki they brought me into a course of study on cosmic harmonious frequencies and specifically they said that this would be frequencies that would lead mankind into unlimited free energy and align oneself with Tesla's 369 technology and um, little did I know they started using crop circles as a almost like a chalkboard in a classroom. And um, when they started teaching me about geometry and how it's associated with specific 432 hertz um, frequencies, that, um, you know, if I had a question on how that would relate to the geometry, the next day it would show up in a crop circle, which was kind of disconcerting a little bit, but um, that led to um, Richard having me on the show and saying, you know, we know your story sounds crazy, but NASA has been looking into how energy works, you know, multidimensionally or hyperdimensionally as Richard calls it for a very long time. And it just so happens your numbers are right on the money. So he arranged for a world renowned uh, biophysicist, um, Beverly Rubick, to look into these crystal disc creations that is me following the guidance. And um, sure enough, she found some pretty uh, history in the making attributes of this technology, which is frequency infused quartz crystal. And um, they have a copper wrap. I need to prove because spirits tell me that the mojo is in the image. And uh, Richard attests that the crystal isn't even necessary. You can put any the print on anything and it brings forth this attribute but some new information came through just recently a couple weeks ago from beverly rubick and she said apparently michael has created a cosmic energy collector or a qi collector so i'm like well what the heck is that and i look <laughs> into it here that's nikolai tesla's own words for his 369 technology so somehow i'm kind of finishing up nikolai tesla's work but um, because of my uh, working with the reverse engineering division for years, uh, a member of that contacted me and said, are you aware that Elon Musk is sending, accepting applications or submissions to Humanities Hall of Fame uh, crystal time capsule going to the moon this quarter of 2023? And mm. said, we think you should submit your image. So I did, and sure enough, uh, it's going to the moon. 
And, you know, if one thing that could be said about this energy, that uh, this cosmic 369 energy is um, Beverly Rubick found out at least it'll resurrect dead municipal tap water back into holy living water. And I think that's just the tip of the iceberg because this is the exact same technology I'm finding out that Nikola Tesla was talking about that he had stumbled across and they shut him down because they're like, wait a minute, it's unlimited, it's free, and it's energy. If we can put it through wires and charge people. But um, so it's going to the moon, and I'm very excited about this because the the testing that um, Richard has set up has proven that the longer you keep a glass of water on the disc, the more this extra photon, photonic light energy, which is coming from another dimension, by the way, because I asked this biophysicist, I said, well, wait a minute. You know, if there was no energy, but now there's a ton of energy, where's that extra energy coming from? Is it from our sun? Is it from our planet? No, Is it from no, our no, planet no, no. tectonic? No. no she said, no. no, it's coming from another dimension. I said, oh, I've never had to ask myself, what's it mean to be drinking water that has energy from another dimension in it? But uh, it is what it is. So I'm very excited because... Michael, it's actually even beyond energy. It's information. Remember, the boundary between three dimension that we live in and hyperspace is something we call entropy. Things in three Mm -hmm. dimensions wind down. Energy flows from hot to cold, never from cold to hot. You know, stones roll downhill, they don't roll uphill, Sisyphus notwithstanding. So when you tap a gateway between dimensions, what happens is the order, the higher order of the higher dimension imprints itself on matter and structure and geometry in this dimension. So what you're basically doing is you're creating a neg entropic, a negative energy Life. I mean, life is negative entropy. We would not exist as living beings without dimensional gates within each and every living organism. And the structured water is merely a more efficient gate to our own life force, which is not just stuck in this dimension. That's beautiful. I, uh, like I said, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg, and you know, sometimes which is made of crystalline water. Pun intended. Yes. Um, well, let and me Michael, ask you, I, I want to add that um, Russell is testing out your disc, and I'm going to ask him about it uh, this coming Saturday. Oh, cool, cool. Wow, wow. fantastic. Yeah. So uh, I, 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 I want to get to John here, but Michael, I need to ask you, do you know where on the moon Musk is landing your disc on, among a bunch of other archival things? No, um, when you have Nova Spivak on your show, you should ask him because uh, that's, you know, the gentleman that has the technology that is encoding, you know, massive amounts of information into specific quartz crystal, and he will be able to answer that. I know it's, you know, obviously SpaceX is taking it, and um, let me ask you, what do you think? I don't, none of this is coincidental, right? There is no such thing as coincidental and man i could get into i've learned from the watchers or the anunnaki whatever you want to call them many names right um so much about the moon that uh especially the moon phases and that we've been under a 
experiment to accelerate human conscious evolution by making us experience our own mental energy in an accelerated fashion. That technology is being broadcast from the moon, they tell me, and it's all due to moon phases. And um, with it's actually backwards. You'd think, you know, the brightest the moon is on a full moon is the most negative effect and amplifying negative energy. But there's these you know, all the different moon phases are varying degrees of light and dark, where a dark moon is actually the least affecting of mankind's uh, mental energy. But they told me this gets into the processional cycle as well, because they said the minute we enter the age of Aquarius, that experiment would end. And as we know, Richard, that was 2016, mm-hmm. uh, December 20. 20- not 2012. Nope, nope. So we're just barely out of the gate. But, you know, the fact that we're talking right now means we have made it through the gate. And they tell me we are in store for becoming a galactic society and a peaceful galactic society. But all the treachery and BS of the system needs to be exposed first so people understand why there's a huge change to the system needed. But they told me as well is this upcoming 2024 eclipse. And this is in some mound builder artifacts known as the Michigan artifacts that Zechariah Sitchin was interested in at the time of his passing. And I was gifted a flash drive of everything he was looking into. And this is one of them. He was tracing down the Anunnaki human hybrid bloodline into the Mayan culture first. They taught them pyramid building and the calendar, and that's all 432 based too, came in through the Mayans and their system of timekeeping. Like look at how many seconds is in 12 hours. It's 43,200. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just all. Well, the whole 360 you know, system get... is hyperdimensional. It's not random. It's not the number of fingers and toes and all that nonsense you hear about. No, the Earth-based timekeeping and angular measurement system is totally hyperdimensional physics. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, we can get into that too with the okay. Well, we we have we have some more players that we need to introduce. So if you yeah. could if you could find out in your copious spare time where you're landing your disc on the on the moon, that'd be useful. Obviously, not not tonight, but we'll talk about it in the coming weeks uh, on the show. I want to segue from Michael to John, but I want to go by way of my number 18 in the images in the radio with pictures. 18 is a beautiful shot over a main forest of what we call the earth shine on the moon. This is the earth light. This is reflected light from the earth, not during a total eclipse, but with a very thin crescent uh, at the earliest crescent you can see the brighter you'll see earth shine both right after sunset and, you know, two weeks later, just before sunrise. And what I do not know tonight, and we actually need participants from the audience to help us figure this out. I do not know whether we need the exact alignment of the moon during a total eclipse with a Polaroid filter and camera system to photograph the domes when you can see earth light with that first thin crescent, uh, what we used to call a new moon, which technically is when the moon is somewhere much closer to the sun uh, earth alignment. But that first thin crescent, that brilliant lit dark hemisphere of the near side is earth light, which on the moon is about 80 times brighter than moonlight on earth. 
and the reflection, as I said, is almost 100% polarized. We now know because of the glass, it's possible that people with smartphones and binoculars and telescopes and more sophisticated, you know, telescopic technology could be flooding us with images of the domes, not during the coming 2024 eclipse, but as the months roll by between now and April of 2024, if they time it just right, right after sunset or right before dawn. Uh, Richard, if I may, before we go on, I want to give uh, Michael a heads up and I want to thank him for an experience I had last week during your show when you and, uh, was his name Bill Hollins? Bill Holman. Uh, Holman. He was talking about meditation and Michael talked about meditation and I snapped into it and I did remote viewing on the crystal skull. Now you had put up some very nice pictures there and so I closed my eyes here and sat as I listened and I very quickly um, remote viewed the crystal skull. But first I saw it floating in space and then I entered it. Now when I entered it, I entered it from the back of the head. And as I entered it, two interesting things happened. First, the crystal skull was absolutely pellucid. That means perfectly transparent and clear. But as I moved into the skull, there were two moments where I saw a membrane and then I saw another membrane. And so it, it was kind of like quartz for a split second. And then I was in my head, my spirit was in the center of the skull. And what was revealed to me is that the crystal skull is like a magnet for universal light. And that the crystal skull, like a lodestone or a magnet, is conducting light from the beginning of time to the end of time. And it is capable of focusing light in, in that span. Imagine from the alpha to the omega, the crystal skull is conducting light from the beginning of time to the end of time. And if you're able to enter into it or commune with the energy of the crystal skull, you can access any time frame from the beginning of time to the future. So you can see the past or you can see the future. And it was a remarkable experience. And the interesting thing for me was this happened to me before Michael started speaking about the lenses that were discovered by the Smithsonian Institute in the skull. Using polarized so it, light. <laughs> yeah, it seems I moved through those two lenses and saw them or their effects before Michael revealed their existence. So thank you very much. That was a incredible experience thank you thank you for sharing your experience i do want to share real quickly that's exactly what it did to me is when i sat down in front of it in the astral it came up and rotated and it came over and superimposed its the skull over my skull and it entered through the back of the skull and you know uh i, I can't explain it but uh it's kind of like the exact same thing you experienced so thank you for sharing you know what just came to my mind michael Maybe God has a pituitary land <laughs> and we slipped in. Oh, when did I lose control of this conversation? Hey, guys, we can move this to, 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 to next Saturday night, you know, and we're going to talk with Russell Targ. And he's promised to stay for at least two hours and maybe even longer. And Laurie Williams will be on. John will be on. And obviously, uh, I'm going to invite in the third hour, Michael, you to come on and Robert, because I think it would be a very interesting multi-dimensional 
conversation. Okay, before I get to John, sorry, John, uh, Andrew's uh, image he's been sketching while we were talking that Keith has a great labor been able to get up on the on the site is up. What are we looking at in number six, Andrew? Well, Richard, I wasn't um, remote viewing <laughs> like Robert, but I, again, when I was doing those, those little sketches for the show and seeing this buttressing, I just had to put myself in a perspective of being, you know, fairly down low on the moon. This is, this is a little sketch I did if you go to my number six. And what I did is I just ghosted in buttressing and, 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 and roofing and, and shells above the moonscape. And that's what my number six is, is a, is that idea that it's just so, like you say, very, uh, what do you say, cigarette smoke thin, but it's there. And, and, it, and it begins to take this very unusual scratchy pattern in, in, a, in a sky that's not exactly black, but more satiny black. So that's what that is. I, I hope. It well, helps. remember what Bean said when the Newsweek reporter said, what did space look like when you were looking up from the surface of the moon? And he said, it looked like a pair of black, patent leather shoes yeah and when i do my layering in photoshop with the sketching and just you know going back and forth and jonathan would know about this you can actually create that kind of feel in the sky and and anyways it's something that people can kind of enjoy and and just have a moment to look okay now, jonathan I, I, you yeah, are I on wish they would have sent a uh, 3d modeler um that, you know on the team that uh, elon is sending to the moon there because there's a tool in 3D modeling software called a particle replicator. And uh, part of my Arches Park Part 2 presentation has a section about the particle replicator. And I have a video clip to show how you can create these fractals. And it's a fractal created like the exact formations that we see in Arches Park and all over the Southwest. And yeah, so but all they have to do, John, is to take enough pictures through the Polaroids, we're going to supply them, and then they send those back by a Twitter, and then you here on Earth can recreate the stunning majesty of what they're going to see, because they're going to be able to see it with their eyeballs through the filters, as well as photograph it with their smart cameras, as well as more sophisticated cameras, I guarantee you they're going to paper the moon with photographs, and we will have access if I'm right about Twitter and Musk, all of them uncensored to recreate for everybody on Earth what they're seeing almost in real time. And my point about the particle replicator is that this is a reflection of the higher technology of these ETs where they can create these vast mountains that are Earth glyphs. I'm I'm also going to, there's about a five minute part of my presentation where I go through the earth glyphs where you start out at the mural and park Avenue. You've zoomed to 2,500. This is our, we're gone from the moon back now to earth to Arches park in Utah. Yeah. And then you elevate to 30,000 feet. You see the, the glyphs and then you go to, you know, city and you're 60 miles above the earth and you see that the earth is a, an art, you know, they created um, you know, I've painted the earth to show these. Wouldn't it be interesting if, you know, Bill would loan one of the artists the skull to take into close orbit of the moon? Mm. Yeah. Think about mm. that. Yeah. And um, 
another point uh, I want to get to. My item number one, there's an image from Ingo Swan's book, Penetration. And that's his impression of, you know, the tower feature, Richard. Right. Now, when, uh, when, when, when did he remote view the moon? And we're going to get into this next uh, Saturday. But you can 1975. Yeah, because he viewed arches and drew them, and they are very. I, I have a slide for next week's show on there, on my items that um, show how they are extremely similar to the arches in Arches Park, and one particular, uh, well, Corona Arch and Rainbow Bridge Arch. And um, so I can get into that next weekend, but. Uh, yeah, very Why cool image. Rainbow Bridge, by the way. Just curious. Isn't that interesting? Because Rainbow Bridge yes. <laughs> is, if if you're a Marvel fan, Marvel Comics, you know that the Rainbow Bridge leads from the physical world to Asgard. Yep. It's this magical bridge. Yeah. And yep. and the special you know, effects people that's... in those movies did a hell of a job on the Rainbow Bridge, which reminded me so much of the lunar architecture that I've been, you know looking at and think about this the the movie poster for man of steel that came out in 23 with henry cavill as superman you see him he's in a flying pose looking at um, you know facing the audience in, in this movie poster and that very moment in the movie is superman is flying around the earth he's just learned to fly and he goes through you know he goes to england africa Next, he's flying through this alien-looking world that kind of looks like Krypton or Mars. And then the camera focuses on and you see his face in that movie poster, and he sees something up ahead, and he, you know, he's going he, to – that's where I'm going. And the next shot is him flying through Rainbow Bridge Arch. Hmm. So yeah. very cool. By the way, Barbara just sent me a note about Georgia. Do we have Georgia connected? Because I don't see her on my screen. And we had talked earlier this afternoon about her being on. I'm hoping she's not having, you know, communications problems. Um, the other point I wanted to make, Richard, is in relation to Andrew's image number, um, the, oh, number the artwork number, number three, okay. the sphere within sphere. And uh, my item number one, I have a quote there from uh, Carl Sagan, and this goes back to Dr. Sean Solomon of MIT. Um, he wrote in Astronautic, this is in February 1962, that uh, the lunar orbiter experiments vastly improved our knowledge of the moon's gravitational field, indicating the frightening possibility that the moon might be hollow. And he goes on to talk about it's not hollow like a basketball, but it's hollow with these large pockets. And they're like caves we have here on Earth, but they're much larger scale that you could have. like During the and, lunar orbiter unmanned phase pre-Apollo, when we sent five spacecraft from uh, Boeing to the moon with basically corona film technology, uh, and they scanned it with photocells and then beamed the scanned images to Earth, um, they found that the orbit of the spacecraft varied in very weird ways, and they developed the uh, model so-called mascons, mass accumulations 
uh, mass concentrations under the surface of the moon, and they found they were centered where the orbit changed kind of weirdly, like there was an increased gravitational effect as they flew over the centers of the dark mare on the front side, the near side of the moon. I am now beginning to think, and I've felt this for quite a while, that what they really have discovered was the other effects of the domes, which are totally unacknowledged in their modeling, totally non-existent. They're invisible. They don't exist. And what they're attributing to mass concentrations is, in fact, a higher level effect on spacecraft orbits of the dome around the moon with all its multiple layers and the areas that are more or less uh, intact and or destroyed. And figuring all that out is going to be a real puzzle. And we are now at the bottom of the hour. So when we come back, we're going to introduce uh, Ruggiero. And Georgia has joined us. And so I will simply say you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And here's another cut from Pink Floyd and the far side of the moon. Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Oh my God. Technical difficulties. Sorry about that. Um, we are back on the other side of midnight on this Sunday night. Actually, it's Monday morning here. And we've been joined by Georgia Lambert, who has been listening to the show. And if I can get my little thingies to work here. Georgia, are you with us? Hello. 
Oh, this is crazy. This is crazy. I'm not hearing anything again. This is absolutely weird. I don't think someone wants us to uh, be talking about this stuff tonight. <laughs> there you are. And I yeah. did, see, it, it comes and goes, okay. and I'm not touching anything. It's bizarre. Well, uh, I've been wrestling with Skype all, all evening, so we're... Hmm. Yes. How fun. Okay, thank you. So, reactions, <laughs> thoughts, yep. music? Well, um, one of the things that, that uh, I thought of immediately looking at the picture of the, the field around the moon is how closely it resembles the magnetic field around the heart, oh. the human heart. And I sent Keith um, uh, an email about half an hour or so ago that shows the magnetic field around the heart and how much it does look like the one around the moon, interestingly enough. Hmm. Uh, I don't know what to make of that, but there you are. It's one of those things. Well, Georgia, it, did you hear me playing the guitar earlier? I did. And when you hold the acoustic against your chest, Michael can attest to this, um, and you play some chords, it vibrates through your body and through your heart. And yes, your I, I, I yeah. do that with my harp. Wow. I, I play nice. the Celtic harp, and it rests right against my breastbone. So the soundboard of the harp is right against that bone. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Hmm. Well, Georgia, I could say something. Dandre here, how you doing? Hi. I could say something about that. Um, Ron, Ron might have something to say about, you know, the significant, well, Richard too, but Ron, Ron and I have had discussions about, you know, has the moon been sort of artificially put in its place to, you know, sprout out life on Earth? Is it indeed kind of a a heart a heart chakra of some sort? Ron, you want to chip in about this? Oh, we lost Ron. Ron, are you there? Yes, I just uh, turned it to speaker for it. I just, let me say I'm here. I just turned to speaker for a moment while Georgia was starting to talk, so I got to plug my, gotta my headset back in. It sounds much better without the headset. You're much clearer. Uh, yeah. Well, I have to. Uh, I have to. It's a there. Okay. Sorry. You'll have to deal with the headset. It's got noise cancellation and everything. Uh, yeah. Andrew's right. There's some. Uh, I think there is some sort of resonant uh, connection. Uh, that's established by the moon. Uh, but on a more meaningful thing, I just uh, checked out Rainbow Bridge. Hello? Yes, we're yeah. all listening. Is that relevant? Yeah, okay. It's very, yeah, very quick. There's a, it's a national monument, of course, uh, but there's also the bridge across Niagara Falls is called Rainbow Bridge. And it is a mythological... Uh, well, in, 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 in the ancient Scandinavian, it's called Bifrost. Right. That's the one that connected to Asgard. It's mm-hmm. how Asgard connects with the, the uh, it's not really the material world, but they portray it as a different dimension in the Marvel movies, which is fine. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, there's, there's more than one of them, and I don't know which one inspired um, uh, 
uh, Jimi Hendrix for the song, whether it was the one over Niagara Falls or the one in uh, Navajo territory, which in Navajo myth, uh, the Rainbow Bridge is an important connection with the um, rest of the universe, if you will. Hey, Ron. The yeah. Rainbow Bridge in Canada is called that because when you cross it, you can see rainbows in the mist. Yeah, yeah, all the droplets of water are refracting yeah, it's sunlight. It's a continuous uh, cloud of vapors. And yeah. so if you got And if right you looked at that sun. with a polarizing filter, you'd see incredible polarizing effects because the droplets oh. refract and reflect differently at the Brewster angle. And, yeah. and in esoteric tradition, the term rainbow bridge stands for what the Hindus call the antikarana, which is the connection between uh, the indwelling consciousness and the overshadowing soul, or between humanity and the spiritual hierarchy of the planet. Mm. I once yeah. saw a moon if ring. I, can... I once saw yeah. the, a rainbow moon ring from... 25,000 feet. I mean, we took off from Dallas on a totally overcast sky. When we broke through the clouds, I looked out the window and I saw a glimmering silvery uh, rainbow ring on top of the clouds. And it took me about a minute to look up and see if the full moon was shining in daytime. And it was creating this amazing iridescent rainbow ring, very oh subtle. You could only see it through the Ray-Bans my that I was wearing. So I handed them over to my friend. I said, take a look at this. Hmm. Yeah. So the rainbows are all over. Just, no, it's, a shame not, it's a shame I'm not on the visible Skype because if I hear the word polarizing one more time, my head may explode. That would be probably a bunch of rainbow colors too. Uh, okay, get out of the way, folks. His brain is going to explode. <laughs> yes, stand back. <laughs> well, I could I could deliver a dissertation on the effect of the uh, of Euler's number on uh, quantum calculations of. Uh, hyperdimensional relationships, but I, I don't think that would... I'd like to hear George's thoughts on all of the uh, amazing things that have been discussed here. So would I, yeah. Thank you, Robert. Georgia? Oh, don't tell me we lost her again. Okay, there, there we you. are. There you are. Um, a couple of things. Uh, there was some talk about the uh, membranes within the crystal skull and so on and so forth. Uh, in metaphysical and esoteric tradition at certain levels of meditation instruction the crown chakra or head center is activated and the ajna center in front of the forehead is activated and when these two are activated together their magnetic fields overlap in the very center of the head and create a chakra that doesn't exist until it's built and it's the human version of the black hole in space mm. it's your doorway to elsewhere sounds unpleasant <laughs> you know if i could add i'm native american indian and one of the grandmothers grandmother morningstar revealed to me that to them i was given the name rainbow warrior eagle and she said rainbow to them doesn't mean what it means to other people it's your human chakra system and that every chakra emits a color of 
the rainbow from red in the root to purple in the crown and all the other colors of the rainbow through the other chakras. And so the Tibetan monks have the same understanding. They said it's, you know, obtaining the rainbow body and, you know, breaking the seven seals. It's and the rainbow bridge um, because part of the communication with crop circles led to a brand new seed of life that they've given to me. And, I was told it's known as the seven-petaled lotus seed of life. And I looked at what the seven-petaled lotus means to the Tibetan culture and said that would be the sacred geometry you find when you cross the uh, rainbow bridge, that it's it symbolizes the seven chakras spinning. Because she told me they only emit color and light when they're free and spinning. And each chakra, she said, has a merkaba. You know, the 19.5. Remember the three laws of hyperdimensional physics. Rotation, rotation, rotation. Yeah, she said only when they're free and unencumbered do they emit the colors of the rainbow. And there's no enlightenment. There's no extra manifestation ability until one has become rainbow. I still think that Ron and I looking at these atomic clocks are going to take to the moon suddenly and the secret mission on capstone with the atomic clock is telling us something about the West has figured out what the Chinese figured out, you know, like 10 years ago, because the Chinese did HD experiments. And I think our guys now are kind of catching up. And I really have the feeling, Ron, that all that palaver about time standards and all that is just cover Emily Dickinson's stuff to cover what they're really looking for, which is the interaction of the moon with the earth, with life, with the physics and the damn presence of the dome. I think it is tied together. There's something I was working on yesterday, which I can't bring to some sort of conclusion yet. I hear somebody in the background. Is uh, the the number system that the ancient Egyptians used was uh, as related to the heavens. The decans. Uh, Yeah, which stands for 10 because they had 10 days in their week. Mm -hmm. And that but that's had influence on a lot of things. And I, it, I think those numbers are important to this somehow. It's one of those things, feelings that you get when you say, okay, I'm uncovering something here, but I don't know what it is yet. Okay, I want to go to Ruggiero because he's had enough time now and enough cups of Earl Grey to be with us and conscious in the pre-dawn hours of Britain. What do you think, Ruggiero? Are we all nuts or are we on to something? Um. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, team. Good morning, listeners. Good morning. Uh, I find uh, your conversation you're, you're raising tonight and the last few shows uh, profoundly interesting. It's outside of my scientific remit slightly, but as uh, a citizen and as an observer, uh, it's something that I want to raise questions on. So I have a question for you, Richard, and I've uh, written some stuff down. So as regards your image six and the previous uh, Alan Bean art, Feature six as well. Okay. Previous show. So my question is: uh, Is this anyone, number six from this show, the CIA image? Okay. Got a bit of a like light scattering. Yeah. Right. Right. Yep. And then it relates to, I guess, to Alan Bean. So, what within classical science calls um, color scattering, and why should this not be compatible or agreeable with your model? Um, is it Earth shine on the moon or? Obviously, something you've explained. Are you it's, talking about the space around the moon? Uh, the the colors. So uh, you mentioned earlier in the show that there was the, the beautiful 
Um, Are you talking so about number that. six in my items tonight or a different show? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to relate to two questions together in one. Because I, I missed what you said about uh, your, your item six. So if you could briefly elaborate what that is. Item six is a, is a film copy of, mm. of CIA film taken from orbit in Project Corona, which was a satellite uh, spy system that, that uh, Eisenhower you know, put in place with recommendations of the CIA, and it was carried out by the Air Force. And it involved taking you know, pretty large lens cameras into orbit, taking lots of film, taking pictures of things supposedly on Earth with the film, and then dropping the capsule off to re-enter and be snagged in mid-flight by an aircraft with a kind of a, a hoop behind it and then taken to a photo lab and developed. And when I got my um, leaked copy of one of the missions, uh, which came through a very long story that I don't have time tonight to tell, what I found was that every single frame was not of bridges and roads and bombers in the Soviet Union. They had taken pictures, endless numbers of pictures of the moon with this special ultraviolet infrared film, obviously, they were looking for the glass scattering of the dome around the moon back in 1961. And I believe that's why Kennedy, when he finally got to see successful images, he initiated the whole Project Apollo to get to the moon before the Russians. Okay. So if I go back to my question, because you're kind of answering it, um, I'll just read it, read it back out. What in classical science would cause the color scattering and why is it not agreeable or compatible with your model? Why, why would you tell classical science, no, you're wrong? And then obviously you bring in the dome discussion afterwards. Does that make sense, everyone? If anyone wants to jump in, it's kind of a vague question. I know what you're asking. Well, Ron, why don't, well, why don't you step in then? Because I'm, I'm a little okay. fuzzy on what he's trying to ask. Sorry. Uh, I think I, I think what he means is that there are there's a uh, textbook explanation for things like uh, prismatic splitting and uh, the various wavelengths of visible light and colors, etc. And he got the impression from what you were saying that that was just wrong. But I don't think that's what you mean, Richard. I think uh, I think you're talking about an additional layer of information. Oh, there has to be an optically light. active layer above the surface yeah. of the moon, Rogero. Otherwise, none of this would work. You'd have sunlight streaming unimpeded to bounce off the surface, which we're told is gray lunar dust, regolith, hmm. all, almost the consistency of, of uh, finely powdered cement and of the same gray color. And so any of the colors that being painted, or we now have photographs, the side-by-side -side comparison in one of the shows of the being painting of Gene Cernan and the photograph of the Apollo 17 landing site. And if you didn't know one was a painting and the other was a photo, you could get them confused because they look identical. And Georgia, as a professional artist, her work is stunning, said to get that match, that color value, luminosity, luminance by chance is just, you know, you can have more, you know, people, angels standing on the head of a pin than the chances are this being simply coincidence. Yeah, that, that, that was along the lines of what I was asking. So uh, 
Oh, that's awesome. Thank you for that. See, we ultimately get there. It's called a random walk process. <laughs> so, so also, Richard, why would that not be um, moon earth shine onto the moon? And is that is that correct? Wait, wait. Which which image are we talking about? Are we talking the one you're just talking about now. You mean the CIA image or the or the one from uh, Alan Beans? Well, because it was Alan taken Beans. it was taken in brilliant sunlight, and sunlight on the moon is ten thousand times brighter than Earth light. So Earth light would be totally obscured in the predominance of glaring, brilliant. Think of think of a daytime scene in Miami, okay? Bright high noon sun. So there's no way that you can see in full daylight the subtle pale uh, subtleties of, of Earth light. You only get that when, when that side of the moon is in night, which means only every two weeks when you're standing on the near side looking at the Earth. And then if you had a polarizing filter and cameras, you would see a stunning display, but very soft and very subtle of the same kind of refracted colors we're getting from the sun, but they'd be much more difficult to see and photograph. That's absolutely awesome. Uh, thanks for that. And I want to say uh, to Andrew as well, I think your drawing was fantastic. And I, I, I look forward to doing one of my own ones and presenting it for the show as well. I'll probably do it in, in pastel uh, with some charcoal to bring out the, uh, the 3D effect. Super. Ooh. Okay, uh, we got about 10 minutes, actually nine. Who wants to say something they haven't said up till now? I do, Richard. Who is this? Andrew. Andrew, Go. Yeah, you kind of teased something at the very beginning of the show with your number five about Chelsea Handler confessing she didn't know the difference between the moon and the sun. And, you know, we've had some back-channel conversations about, and I wouldn't just say American education, but maybe education all over the planet, um, making people think really weird ideas. I'm going to quickly read a couple of, of ones. There was a congressman back in, I believe it was 2011, and his name is... Um, uh, Congressman Hank Johnson, and he said that, well, he speculated that if too many people lived on the island of Guam, it might capsize. What? I mean, yeah. And he's still still in Congress, I believe. Yeah, he's a representative of Georgia. Oh, great. Well, and and, and here's another one. This is from last year. This is uh, Representative Louis Gohmert, and I'm not just, I mean, the first one I talked about was a Democrat. This is a Republican. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle, okay? What Richard was touching on is where is our education system going? Anyways, Republican um, Representative Louis Go Go Mert from yeah Texas. from Texas. He suggest this is from um, uh, NBCNews.com suggested at a congressional hearing that climate change could be com- combated by altering the orbit of the moon and asked a U.S. Forest Service official whether there was any way the agency could do it. I so saw that it. hearing live. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Richard, I, I, I know we, we've talked about, you know, maybe getting, getting into this a little deeper one day. This is not the forum for it now, but I think you just brought up a very salient point about, you know, if we're trying to show that there's domes on the moon and people don't even know the difference between the moon and the sun, we got a lot of work to do. <laughs> and this well, is the educational platform to do it. Chelsea Handler's a blonde. No, yes, no, you, you no. cannot point I'm that out. She has dark roots. Okay, I won't mention Yeah, look that. at the dark roots, okay? <laughs> look, hey guys, look. I just came up with something that may have uh, a strong bearing on what we're trying to analyze here, and it has to do with Rayleigh scattering. Ah. And, yeah, let me just read you this very short paragraph. 
which when you're talking about cigarette smoke uh, type dust in the moon, mm-hmm. Rayleigh scattering results from the electric polar, polar, polarizability of polarizability. Polarizability of the particles. The oscillating electric field of a light wave acts on the charges within a particle, causing them to move at the same frequency. The particle, therefore, becomes a small radiating dipole whose radiation we see as scattered light. Mm -hmm. The particles may be individual atoms or molecules. It can occur when light travels through transparent solids and liquids, but is most predominantly seen in gases. End of quote. When I got wow. the uncensored color images from Ken Johnston that he had saved from his the order that came down from on high to destroy all the copies of the Apollo imagery, you know, crime, crime, talk about crime. Anyway, he took one set home and gave one set to his university. The set he gave to the university we could never find. But the set he took home, he had copies of color imagery, which I put through an early version of a scanner. And I found that the dome is seen from the surface under the right lighting is blue because of the Rayleigh scattering of very tiny short wavelengths of blue light from equally sized tiny particles remaining of the glass dome. So it acts like an atmosphere. You know, why is the sky blue, mommy? Because the atmospheric molecules are of the same order as blue light. The same is true of the surviving particles of the glass in the domes, which is how I can say with some scientific authenticity, they're the size of cigarette smoke particles. By the way, Richard, there's a series of photographs taken by Apollo 12 or Apollo 15 over a region called Jensen Crater. And it's always mystified me why we can't see the craters, uh, the rims really clearly. It looks like there's, there are clouds. There's something in the way. Yeah, over the entire region. And you, and you can see it on Apollo 10 imagery. You can see it in all the missions. And that's what tells me that the glass has geometry and it's oriented perpendicular to the gravity radius vector from above the moon down to the core. And that's what you're seeing in that comparison of the Brewster angle with the longitude and latitude on the moon. The dome becomes visible right at the Brewster angle. Ergo, it's there. Yeah. Remember that region, Jansen Crater. We have to explore that more yep, closely. Yep. In the yep. Apollo photos. Yep. Okay. We've got about uh, three minutes till the end of the show. Georgia, you had something? No, I just noticed that Keith put up my uh, my photos uh, of the uh, heart field, the magnetic field of the heart. So they're up on the site now. Are they Thank under you, you or are they under Andrew? They're under me. But, oh, good, uh, good. Okay. I'm I'm under uh, Andrew's list. Okay, you well, scroll let me... down. Go past Andrew's. Got it. And got I'm, it. Now. I'm down at the bottom. Oh, okay. I need to refresh. That's what I need to do. Okay. Well, guys. Oh, yeah. Look, oh, isn't that cool? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, we've got a couple minutes here. Um, I think part of our, our political track, and Barbara, please join in. I sent Barbara a link to a Republican congressman who really thinks that there are 
aliens running around in our skies in UAPs, UFOs, whatever. What I'm going to propose, and Barbara, you don't have to accept if you don't want to, when I create a template, which I have to do for the book anyway, of the data, like, you know, I'm talking about what we put in the full-page ad, Barbara would be our emissary to get this to the congressman's desk who thinks there really are ETs and has no idea that NASA has been hiding ET evidence right in our backyard for decades, and it could be our kind of test particle to see how a congressman who's open to these ideas responds to real data that taxpayers paid for and have not had access to for decades? Barbara, what do you think? We'll talk about it. <laughs> she said very dryly. <laughs> okay. Hey, Richard, I do want to add, I was contacted by Bigelow Aerospace and me and the investigator. Well, Robert uh, Bigelow himself? Friends. Yeah, no, it was uh, Gary Hernandez. Okay. He was an investigator for Bigelow Advanced uh, Bigelow Aerospace Advanced Space Studies, who was funded by the Pentagon. And uh, they contacted me because they said, we know you're in contact with the real thing because we've been studying it over the Skinwalker Ranch for 25 so years. But I learned a lot that's not been released to the public um, regarding the phenomenon and what it is. So I'd like to share that sometime because I, I can prove he is who he is. He's actually in LinkedIn. And it says how, you know, using classified projects for Bigelow Aerospace. And um, it's a very interesting information about what these orbs of light are that are showing up worldwide. Oh, please, well, let's do a whole show on the orbs. Yeah, by all means. Okay, we've got two minutes till the end of the show, and I have something I need to say. We know that representatives of Elon Musk listen to this show. Just watch him and Rogan talk about me on Rogan's show. I would strongly recommend that some of the audience, more than one, make copies of this show from the 19.5 archive and send them to Musk's Twitter feed on Twitter, pointing out that this is why he's sending nine artists uniquely to the moon before NASA, and he can definitely make positive history if all he does is listen to this one show. And look, of course, at the images. And on that note, we are basically out of time. I want to thank all my guests this morning, too numerous to mention. They're all on the Other Side of Midnight website for the 29th and now the 30th of January. Next Saturday, what we're going to do is uh, replay, replay. We're going to reschedule Russell Targ um, uh, remote viewing program. And then Sunday night, we're doing part two of things to come in 2023, and gosh knows what might have happened between now and then that we can tell you about. So until next week, same time, same bat channel, remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking at the moon. <laughs>